0: The following is a conversation with Charles Isbell, Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech, a researcher and educator in the field of artificial intelligence, and someone who deeply thinks about what exactly is the field of computing and how do we teach it. He also has a fascinatingly varied set of interests, including music, books, movies, sports, and history. They make him especially fun to talk with. When I first saw him speak, his charisma immediately took over the room and I had a stupid excited smile on my face and I knew I had to eventually talk to him on this podcast. Quick mention of each sponsor, followed by some thoughts related to the episode. First is Neuro, the maker of functional sugar-free gum and mints that I use to give my brain a quick caffeine boost. Second is Decoding Digital, a podcast on tech and entrepreneurship that I listen to and enjoy. Third is Masterclass, online courses that I watch from some of the most amazing humans in history. And finally, Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends for food and drinks. Please check out these sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that I'm trying to make it so that the conversations with Charles, Eric Weinstein, and Dan Carlin will be published before Americans vote for president on November 3rd. There's nothing explicitly political in these conversations, but they do touch on something in human nature that I hope can bring context to our difficult time and maybe, for a moment, allow us to empathize with people we disagree with. With Eric, we talk about the nature of evil. With Charles, besides AI and music, we talk a bit about race in America and how we can bring more love and empathy to our online communication. And with Dan Carlin, well, we talk about Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Hitler, Stalin, and all the complicated parts of human history in between with a hopeful eye toward a brighter future for our humble little civilization here on Earth. The conversation with Dan will hopefully be posted tomorrow on Monday, November 2nd. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars and Apple a podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I do give you timestamps. So if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by Neuro, a company that makes functional gum and mints that supercharge your mind with a sugar-free blend of caffeine, L-theanine, and B6, B12 vitamins. It's loved by Olympians and engineers alike. I personally love the mint gum. It helps me focus during times when I can use a boost. My favorite use case is in the morning at the start of a deep work session. For me, it's really important to get that first 10 to 20 minutes off to a great start. That's when the desire to think about and check on the stresses of the previous day is strongest. But it's also when it's most important to calm the mind and focus on the task at hand. Anyway, two pieces of Neuro gum has one cup of coffees worth of caffeine. Neuro is offering 15% off when you use code LEX at checkout. So go to getneuro.com and use code LEX. This show is sponsored by Decoding Digital Podcast that is hosted by AppDirect co-CEO Dan Sachs. It's a relatively new show I started listening to where every episode is an interview with an entrepreneur or expert on a particular topic in the tech space. I like the recent interview with Michelle Zatlin of Cloudflare about security. I've been progressively getting more interested in hacking culture, both on the attack and the defense side. So this conversation was a fun educational 45 minutes to listen to. I think this podcast has a nice balance between tech and business that many of you might enjoy especially if you're thinking of starting a business yourself or working at a startup. I'm thinking through this process myself, trying to find the balance between careful planning and throwing caution to the wind and just going with it. Anyway, check out the coding Digital on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give them all the love in the world and encouragement to help keep it going and help the podcast grow. This show is also sponsored by Masterclass, $180 a year for an all access pass to watch courses from literally the best people in the world on a bunch of different topics. Let me list some I've enjoyed watching in part or in whole. Chris Hadfield on space exploration, Neil deGrasse Tyson on scientific thinking and communication, Will Wright, creator of SimCity and Sims on game design, Carlos Santana on guitar, Garry Kasparov on chess, Daniel Negrano on poker, Neil Gaiman on storytelling, Martin Scorsese, one of my favorite directors on filmmaking, Tony Hawk on, you guessed it, <laughs> uh, skateboarding, Jane Goodall on conservation, and many, many more. By the way, you can watch it on basically any device. Sign up at masterclass.com lex to get 15% off the first year of an annual subscription. That's masterclass.com slash Lex. Finally, this show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code Lex Podcast. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. I'm thinking of doing more conversations with folks who work in and around the cryptocurrency space, similar to AI, unfortunately, but even more so, I think, There's a lot of charlatans in the space, but there's also a lot of free thinkers and technical geniuses that are worth exploring in depth and with care. If I make mistakes in guest selection and details in conversation, I'll keep trying to improve, correct where I can, and also keep following my curiosity wherever it takes me. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play, and use code LEXPODCAST, you get $10. And Cash App will also donate $10 to First, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Charles Isabel. You've mentioned that you love movies and TV shows. Let's uh, ask an easy question, but you have to be definitively, objectively conclusive. What's your top three movies of all time?
1: So you're asking me to be definitive and to be conclusive. That's a little hard, I'm gonna tell you why. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. It's because uh, movies is too broad of a category. I gotta pick subgenres. But I will tell you that of those genres, I'll pick one or two from, from each of the dollars, and I'll get us to three, Except I'm gonna cheat. So my favorite comedy of all times, which probably my favorite movie of all time, is His Girl Friday, which is probably a movie that you've not ever heard of, but it's based on a play called The Front Page from, I don't know, early 1900s. Uh, and the movie is a
0: fantastic film What's the story? What's the independent film? No, no, what no. What are we no. talking this, about? This
1: is one this is one of, of the movies that would have been very popular. It's a screwball comedy. You ever see Moonlighting, the TV show? No. You know what I'm talking about? So you've seen these shows where there's a man and a woman and they clearly are in love with one another and they're constantly fighting and always talking over each other. Yeah. Banter, 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 banter. Yeah. This was the movie that started all that as far as as I'm concerned. It's very much of its time, so it's uh, I don't know. It must've come out sometime between 1934 and 1939. I'm not sure exactly when the movie itself oh. came out. Uh, it's black and white. Um, it's, it's just a fantastic film. It is hilarious. So it's mostly conversation. Uh, not entirely, but mostly, mostly just a lot of back and forth. There's a story there. Someone's on death row and they're, um, they're uh newspaper men, including her. They're all newspaper men. Uh, they were divorced. The editor, the publisher, I guess. And, uh, Uh, The reporter, they were divorced. Um, But, you know, they clearly, he's thinking, trying to get back together. And there's this whole other thing that's going on. But none of that matters. The plot doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just a little play in conversation. It's fantastic. And uh, I just love everything about the conversation. Because at the end of the day, sort of narrative and conversation are the sort of things that drive me. And so I really, I really like that movie for that reason. Similarly, I'm now going to cheat and I'm going to give you two movies as one. Um, And they're Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and John Wick. Hmm. both relatively modern john wick of course is, one two or three on. one uh it gets increasingly i love them all for different reasons and increasingly more yeah. ridiculous kind of like loving alien and aliens despite the fact they're two completely different movies but the reason i put couching uh Crouching, tiger hidden dragon and john wick together is because i actually think they're the same movie or what i like about them <laughs> yeah. the same movie which is both of them create a world that you're coming in the middle of and they don't explain it to you Mm -hmm. But the story is done so well that you pick it up. So anyone who's seen John Wick, you know, you have these little coins and they're headed out and there are these rules. And apparently every single person in New York City is an assassin. Um, There's like two people who come through who aren't, but otherwise they are. But there's this complicated world and everyone knows each other. They don't sit down and explain it to you, but you figure it out. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a lot like that. You get the feeling that this is chapter nine of a 10 part story. Mm And you've missed the first eight chapters yeah. and they're not going to explain it
0: to you, but there's this
1: sort of rich world
0: behind you. So you I get pulled in anyway, like You get pulled
1: in anyway. So it's just excellent storytelling in both cases and yeah. very, very different. And also ways.
0: you like the outfit, I assume. The John Wick outfit. Oh yeah, sim- of course, well, okay. of course.
1: Yes, I think John Wick perfect. <laughs> right.
0: And so that's that's number two. And then, but sorry to pause on the Mar- martial arts. You have a long list of hobbies, like it, mm-hmm. it scrolls off the page. But I didn't, I didn't see martial arts as one of them.
1: I do not do martial arts, but I certainly
0: watch I Martial it.
1: arts. Oh, I appreciate it very much. Oh, we could talk about every Jackie Chan movie ever made. Okay, and okay. I would be I would be on board with that. So like
0: uh, too, like that kind of the comedy of its cop. Yes, yes. By the way, my
1: favorite Jackie Chan movie would be. Drunken Master 2, known two. in the States usually as Legend of the Drunken Master. Hmm. Uh, actually, Drunken Master, the first one, is the first kung fu movie I ever saw, but I did not know that. that
0: first Jackie Chan movie?
1: No, first one ever that I Richard, saw and remember, but I had no idea what is this? that that's what it was, and I didn't know that was Jackie Chan. That was like his first major movie. Yeah. um, I was a kid. It was done in the 70s. I only later rediscovered that that it was actually...
0: And he creates uh, his own martial art by... By drink, was he actually drinking, or was, uh, or was he play drinking?
1: You I mean think. as an actor,
0: or no? A <laughs> I'm sure as an actor. He was, <laughs> no, he was the he, 70s or whatever.
1: <laughs> he was definitely drinking, and uh, he uh, in the end he drinks industrial grade alcohol. Ah, yeah, yeah, and has a fent- one of the most fantastic fights ever in that 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 subgenre. Anyway, uh, that's my favorite one of his movies. But I'll tell you the last movie. Um, Is actually a movie called Nothing But a Man, which is in the 1960s, uh, starred um, Ivan Dixon, who you'll know from um, uh, Hogan's Heroes, Mm. uh, and Abby Lincoln. It's just a really small little drama. It's a a beautiful story. But my favorite scenes, I'm cheating, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite movies just for the ending is The Godfather. I think the last scene of that is just... Fantastic, it's the whole movie all summarized in just eight, nine seconds.
0: Godfather Part One? Part One. How does it end? I don't think you can. You need to worry about spoilers if okay. you haven't seen The Godfather.
1: Spoiler alert, The um, it ends with uh, the wife coming to Michael and he says, just this once I'll let you ask me my business. And she asks him if, she, if he did this terrible thing and he looks her in the eye and he lies and he says, no. And she says, thank you. And she, she walks out the door and you see, her, you see him as she's going, you see, him go, you see her going out of the door, and all these people are coming in and they're kissing Michael's hands and Godfather. And then the camera switches perspective. So instead of looking at him, you're looking at her, and the door closes in her face. And that's the end of the movie. And that's the whole movie
0: right there. Do you see parallels between that and your position as dean at Georgia Tech Chrome? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, certainly (laughs) the door gets closed on me every once in a while. (laughs) Okay, that was a rhetorical question. Uh, You've also mentioned that you, um, I think, enjoy all kinds of experiments, including on yourself. But I I saw a video where you said uh, you did an experiment where you tracked all kinds of information about yourself Mm -hmm. and uh, a few others, the sort of... uh, wiring up your home. And the, this this little idea that you mentioned in that video, which is kind of interesting that you thought that two days worth of data is enough to capture majority of the behavior of the human being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First, can you describe <laughs> what the heck you did uh, to collect all the data? Because it's fascinating, just like little details of how you collect that data, and also what your intuition behind the two days is.
1: So, first of all, it has to be the right two days. But uh, I was I was thinking of a very specific experiment. There's actually a suite of them that I've been a part of, and other people have done this, of course. I've, I just sort of dabbled in that part of the world. Uh, but to be very clear, the specific thing that I was talking about, uh, had to do with recording all the IR going on in my uh, infrared going on in my my house. So this is a long time ago. So this is everything's being curled by by, by pressing buttons um, on remote controls as opposed to speaking to Alexa or Siri or or someone like that. And I was just trying to figure out if you could get enough data on people to figure out what they were going to do with their TVs or their lights. My house was completely wired up at the time. Which um, you know what I'm about to pre- look at a movie. Or I'm about to turn on the TV or whatever, and just see what I could predict from it. <laughs> It was kind of surprising it shouldn't have been, but that's all very easy to do, by the way, just capturing all the little stuff. I mean, it's a bunch of computer systems. It's really easy to capture, day if you know what you're looking for. Um, at Georgia Tech, long before I got there, we had this thing called the Aware Home uh, where everything was wired up and you, saw, you captured everything that was going on. Nothing even difficult, not with video or anything like that, just the way that the system was just capturing everything. Um, so uh, it turns out that and I did this with myself and then I had students and they worked with uh, many other people. And it turns out at the end of the day, people do the same things over and over and over again. So it has to be the right two days, like a weekend, but it turns out not only can you predict what someone's going to do next at the level of what button they're gonna press next mm-hmm. on a remote control, um, but you can do it with something really, really simple. like a. You don't even need a hidden Markov model, it's like a mark just simply, I press this, this is my prediction of the next thing. And it turns out you can get 93% accuracy just by doing something very simple and stupid and just counting counting statistics. But what was actually more interesting is that you could use that information. This comes up again and again in my work. Um, if you try to represent people or objects uh, by the things they do, the things you can measure about them that have to do with action in the world, uh, so a distribution over actions, and you try to represent them by the distribution of actions that are done on them, then you do a pretty good job of sort of understanding how people are, and they cluster remarkably well. Um, in fact, irritatingly so. Uh, and so, by clustering people this way, you can uh, maybe you know I got the ninety-three percent accuracy of what's the next button you're going to press, but I can get ninety-nine percent accuracy or somewhere there's about on the collections of things you might press. And it turns out the things that you might press are all related to number to each other in exactly the way that you would expect. So, for example all the key, all the numbers on a keypad, it turns out, all have the same behavior with respect to you as a human being. And so you would naturally cluster them together and dis- you discover that numbers are all are related to one another in some way and all these other things. And then, and here's the part that I think is important. I mean, you can see this in, in all kinds of things. Every individual is different, but any given individual is remarkably predictable uh, because you keep doing the same things over and over again. And the two things that I've learned in the long time that I've been thinking about this, is people are easily predictable, and people hate when you tell them that they're easily predictable. <laughs> but they
0: are, yeah. and there you go. Yeah. What about, let me uh, play devil's advocate, and philosophically speaking, is it possible to say that what defines humans is the outlier? So, even though 90, some large percentage of our behaviors, whatever the signal we measure is the same and it would cluster nicely, mm-hmm. but maybe it's the special moments of when we break out of the routine is the definitive things. And the way we break out of that routine for each one of us might be different.
1: It's possible. I would say that the, I would say it a little differently. I think
0: I would make two things. One is a, uh,
1: I'm going to disagree with the premise, I think, uh, but that's fine. Uh, I think <laughs> the way I would put it is, uh, there are people who are very different from lots of other people, but they're not 0%. They're closer to 10%, right? So in fact, even if you do this kind of clustering of people, that'll turn out to be the small number of people. They all behave like each other, even if they individually behave very differently from 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 everyone else. So I think that's kind of important. But what you're really asking, I think, and, and I think this is a really a question, is you know, what do you do when you're faced with the situation you've never seen before? What do you do when you're faced with an extraordinary situation maybe you've seen others do and you're actually forced to do something and you react to that very differently. And that is the thing that makes you human. I would agree with that, at least at a philosophical level, that it's the the times when you are faced with something difficult, a decision that you have to make, uh, where the answer isn't easy, even if you know what the right answer is, That's sort of what defines you as the individual, and I think what defines people people broadly. It's the hard problem. It's not the easy problem. It's the thing that's going to hurt you. It's not the thing. um, It's not even that it's difficult. It's just that you know that the outcome is going to be highly suboptimal for you. And I do think that that's a reasonable place to start for the question of what makes us human.
0: So before we talk about, sort of explore the different ideas underlying interactive artificial intelligence, which we are working on, let me just go along this thread to skip to kind of our world of social media, which is something that, uh, uh, at least on the artificial intelligence side, you think about. There's a popular narrative, I don't know if it's true, but that we have these silos in in social media Mm -hmm. and we have these clusterings, as you're kind of mentioning and the idea is that you know uh, along that narrative is that you know we want to we want to break each other out of those silos so we can be empathetic to other people to if you're a, a democrat you're empathetic to the republican if you're a republican you're empathetic to dem- democrat those are just two silly bins that we seem to be very uh, excited about but there's other binnings that we can think mm-hmm. about is there from when artificial intelligence perspective, because you're just saying we cluster along the data, mm-hmm. but then interactive artificial intelligence is is referring to throwing agents into that mix, AI systems in that mix, helping us interacting with us humans and maybe getting us out of those silos. Is that something that you think is possible? Do you see a hopeful possibility for artificial intelligence systems in these large networks of people to get us outside of our habits in at least the idea space, to where we can sort of um, be empathetic to other people's lived experiences, other people's points of view, you know, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yes, and I actually don't think it's that hard. Well, it's it's not hard in this sense. So imagine that you can, um, let's, let's let's make life simple for a minute. Let's assume that you can do a kind of partial ordering over ideas. Or clusterings of behavior it doesn't even matter what I mean here so long as there's some way that this is a cluster, this is a cluster, there's some edge between them right and there's kind of they don't quite touch even or maybe they come very close. if you can imagine that conceptually, then the way you get from here to here is not by going from here to here the way you get from here to here is you find the edge mm-hmm. and you move slowly together right and I think that machines are actually very good at that sort of thing once we can kind of define the problem either in terms of behavior or ideas or words or whatever so it's it's easy in the sense that if you already have the network, and you know the relationships, you know the edges and sort of the strings on them, and you kind of have some semantic meaning for them. The machine doesn't have to, you do as the designer. Uh, then yeah, I think you can kind of move people along and sort of expand them. But it's harder than that. And the reason it's harder than that, um, or sort of coming up with the network structure itself is hard, is because I'm gonna tell you a story that I, I, someone else told me. And I don't, I may get some of the details a little bit wrong, but it's, it's roughly, it roughly goes like this. You take two sets of people, from the same backgrounds, and you want them to solve a problem. So you separate them, up, which we do all the time, right? Oh, you know, we're going to break out into we're going to break out groups. You're going to go over there and you're going to talk about this. You're going to go over there and you're talk about this. And then you have them uh, sort of in this big room, but far apart from one another. And you have them sort of interact with one another. When they come back to talk about what they learned, you want to merge what they've done together. It can be extremely hard because they don't they basically don't speak the same language anymore. Like when you create these problems and you dive into them, you create your own language. So the example this one person gave me, which I I found kind of interesting because we were in the middle of that at the time, was they're sitting over there and they're talking about these rooms that you can see, but you're seeing them from different vantage points depending upon which side of the room you're on. They can see a clock very easily. And so they start referring to the room as the one with the clock. This group over here, looking at the same room, they can see the clock, but it's you know not in their line of sight or whatever, so they end up um, referring to it by some other way. When they get back together and they're talking about things, they're referring to the same room, and they don't even realize they're referring to the same room. And in fact, this group doesn't even see that there's a clock there, and this group doesn't see whatever. The clock on the wall is the thing that stuck with me. So if you create these different silos, the problem isn't that the ideologies disagree. It's that you're using the same words and they mean radically different things. The hard part is just getting them to agree on the, well, the, maybe we'd say the axioms in our world, right? But, you know, just get them to agree on some basic definitions. Because right now they talk, they're talk, they talking past each other, just completely talking past each other. That's the hard part. Getting them to meet, getting them to interact, that may not be that difficult. Getting them to see where their language is leading them to lead past one another, That's that's the hard part.
0: It's a really interesting question to me. It could be on the layer of language, but it feels like there's multiple layers to this. Like it could be worldview. It could be, I mean, it all boils down to empathy, being able to put yourself in the shoes of the other person Mm -hmm. to learn the language, to learn like visually how they see the world, to learn like the... I mean I, I experience this now with, with trolls uh, the the degree of humor mm-hmm. in that world for example I talk about love a lot I'm very like I have, uh, I'm very really lucky to have a, this amazing community of loving people but whenever I encounter trolls they always roll their eyes at the idea of love because mm-hmm. it's so quote unquote cringe yeah uh so so they they show love by like derision I would say and uh I think about on the human level, that's a whole nother discussion. That's psychology, that's so sociology, so on. But I wonder if AI systems can help somehow and to bridge the gap of what is this person's life like? Encourage me to just ask that question, to put myself in their shoes, to experience the agitations, the fears, the hopes they have, the to experience, you know, the. even just to think about what what was their upbringing like, like having a a single parent home or a shitty education or all those kinds of things, just to put myself in that mind space. It it feels like that's really important for us to to bring those clusters together, to find that similar language, but it's unclear how AI can help that because it seems like AI systems need to understand both parties first. (laughs)
1: So, the, you know, the word understand there's doing a lot of work, right? Yes. So yes. do you have to understand it or do you just simply have to note that there is something similar and as a point to touch, right? Yes. So, you know, you, you use the word empathy, and, and I like that word for a lot of reasons. I think you're right in the way that you're using it, the way that you're describing it, but let's separate it from sympathy, right? So, you know, sympathy is feeling sort of for someone. Empathy is kind of understanding where they're coming from and how they how they feel, right? And for most people— uh, those things go hand in hand for some people, some are very good at empathy and very very bad at sympathy. Some people cannot experience well my observation would be i 'm not a psychologist. my observation would be that some people seem incapable of feeling sympathy unless they feel empathy first. Mm-hmm. You can understand someone, understand where they 're coming from, and still think no i i, I can 't support that yeah. right it doesn 't mean that the only way i because if that if that isn 't the case, then what it requires is that you um you must, the only way that you can, to understand someone means you must agree with everything that they do, which right. isn't right, right? And right. and and if the only way I can feel for someone is to completely understand them and make them like me in some way, well, then we're lost, right? Because we're not all exactly like each other. I don't have to understand everything that you've gone through. It helps clearly. But they're separable ideas, right? Even though they get clearly, clearly tangled up in one another. So what I think AI could help you do, actually, is if... And you know I'm I'm being quite fanciful as it were. But if you if you think of these as kind of I understand how you interact, the words that you use, the you know the actions you take. I have some way of doing this. Let's not worry about what that is. Um, but I can see you as a kind of distribution of experiences and ac- actions taken upon you, things you've done, and so on. And I can do this with someone else, and I can find the places where there's some kind of commonality, mm-hmm. um, a mapping as it were, even if it's not total. You know the if you, if I think of you as distribution, right then you know I can take the cosine of the angle between you, and if it's you know <laughs> if it's zero, you've got nothing in common if it's one, you're completely the same person. Well, you know you're probably not one, you're almost certainly not zero. If I can find the place where there's the overlap, then I might be able to introduce you on that basis or connect you in that connect you in that way um and make it easier for you to take that step of that step of empathy um it's not It's not impossible to do, although I wonder if it requires that everyone involved is at least interested in asking the question. So maybe the hard part is just getting them interested in asking the question. In fact, maybe if you can get them to ask the question, how are we more alike than we are different, they'll solve it themselves. Maybe that's the problem that AI should be working on, not telling you how you're similar or different, but just getting you to decide that it's worthwhile asking the question.
0: So It
1: feels like an economist's answer, actually. (laughs)
0: Well, people. Okay, first of all, people like it when I would disagree. So let me disagree slightly. Which is, I think, everything you said is brilliant. But I, I tend to believe, philosophically speaking, that people are interested underneath it all. And I I would say that AI, the, the possibility that an AI system would show the commonality is incredible. That's a really good starting point. I would say if you, if on social media. I could discover the common things deep or shallow between me and a person who there's tension with mm-hmm. I think that my basic human nature would take over from there and I think enjoy that commonality and like there's something sticky about that that my mind will linger on and that person in my mind will become like warmer and warmer and like I'll I'll start to feel more and more compassion towards them I I think for majority of the population that's True, but that might be—that's a hypothesis.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's an empirical question, right? You'd, right? you'd have to figure it out. I—I th- I mean, I want to believe you're right, and so I'm going to say that I think you're right. Of course, some people come to those things for the purpose of trolling, right? And it doesn't matter—they're—they're they're playing a different game. Yeah, but I don't know. I, you know, my experience is it requires two things. It requires, in fact, maybe this is really at the end what you're saying, and 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 I and I do agree with this for sure. So you it's hard to hold on to that kind of anger or to hold on to just the desire to humiliate someone for that long it's just right. difficult to do it takes it takes a, a toll on you but more importantly we know this both from people having done studies on it but also from our own experiences that it is much easier to be um dismissive of a person if they're not in front of you if they're not real right so much of the history of the world is about making people other right so if you're in social media if you're on the web if you're doing whatever on the internet, being forced to deal with someone as a person, some equivalent to being in the same room uh, makes a huge difference because in your one you're forced to deal with their humanity because it's in front of you the other is of course that uh, you know they might punch you in the face if you go too far so you know both of those things kind of work together I think to the to the right end so I think bringing people together, is really a kind of substitute for forcing them to see the humanity in another person and to not be able to treat them as bits. It's hard to troll someone when you're looking them in the eye. This is very difficult to do.
0: Agreed. Your broad set of research interests fall under interactive AI, as uh, I mentioned, which is a fascinating set of ideas, and you have some concrete things that you're particularly interested in, but maybe could you talk about how you think about the field of interactive artificial intelligence?
1: Sure. So let me say up front that uh, if you look at, well, certainly my early work, but even if you look at most of it, uh, I'm a machine learning guy, right? I do machine learning. First paper I ever published was in NIPS. Um, back then it was NIPS, now it's a NeurIPS. Uh, it's a long story there. Anyway, that's another <laughs> thing. But so so I'm a machine learning guy, right? I believe in data, I believe in statistics and, and all those kind of yes. things. Yes. And the reason I'm bringing that up is, even though I'm a newfangled statistical machine learning guy, and I'll, and have been for a very long time, the problem I really care about is AI, yeah. right? I care about artificial intelligence. I care about building um, some kind of intelligent artifact, however that gets expressed, uh, that would be intel at least as intelligent as humans, um, and as interesting as humans, perhaps on their on their their sort of in their own way.
0: So that's the deep underlying love and dream is the bigger bigger AI. Yes, it's the bigger it's the whatever the heck that is.
1: Yeah, the machine learning in some ways is a means to the end. It is not the end. And I don't understand how one could be intelligent without learning. So therefore, I got to figure out how to do that, right? So that's important. But machine learning, by the way, is also a tool. I said statistical because that's what most people think of themselves as machine learning people. That's how they think. I think so. Pat Langley might disagree, or at least 1980s Pat Langley might disagree uh, with what it takes to do to do machine learning. But I care about the AI problem, which is why it's interactive AI, not just interactive ML. I think it's important to to understand that that there's a long-term goal here, which I will probably never live to see, but I would love to have been a part of, which is building something truly intelligent um, outside of outside of ourselves.
0: Can we take a tiny tangent, or sure. am I interrupting, which is, is there something you can say uh, concrete about the mysterious gap between the subset ML and the bigger AI? What's uh, missing? What's What do you think? I mean, obviously, it's a to- totally unknown not totally, but in part unknown at this time, but is it something like with Pat Langley's, is it knowledge, like expert system reasoning type of kind of thing?
1: So uh, AI is bigger than ML, but ML is bigger than AI. Th- this is kind of the real the, the the real problem here is that they're really overlapping things that are really interested in slightly different problems. I tend to think of ML, and there are many people out there who are going to be very upset at me about this, but I tend to think of ML being much more concerned with the engineering of solving a problem, right. um, and AI about the sort of more philosophical goal of of true intelligence. And that's the thing that motivates me, even if I end up finding myself living in this kind of engineering ish space. I've now made made Michael Jordan upset, but you know it's it's. It's to me, they just feel very different. You're just measuring them differently. Your 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 sort of goals of where you're trying to be are, are somewhat different. Yeah. But to me, AI is about trying to build that intelligent thing. And typically, but not always, for the purpose of understanding ourselves a little bit better. Machine learning is, I think, trying to solve the problem, uh, whatever that problem is. Now that's my take. Others, of course, would disagree.
0: So on on that note, so with the interactive AI, do you tend to, in your mind, visualize AI as a singular system, or is it a, as a collective huge amount of systems interacting with each other? Like, is, is, is the social interaction of us humans and of AI systems the fundament, fundamental to intelligence?
1: I think, it well, it's certainly fundamental to our kind of intelligence, right? And I, I actually think it matters quite a bit. So the reason um, the interactive AI part matters to me uh, is because I don't, this is gonna sound simple, but, I don't care whether a tree makes a sound when it falls and there's no one around because I don't think it matters, right? Yeah. If there's no observer in some sense, and I think what's interesting about the way that we're intelligent is we're intelligent with other people, right? Or other things anyway, and we go out of our way to make other things intelligent. We're 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 hardwired to like find intention even whether there is no intention. Why I we mean, anthropomorphize everything? We I think anyway. We we I think the interactive AI part is. Being intelligent in and of myself in, an is- in isolation is a meaningless act in some sense. Uh, the correct answer is you have to be intelligent in the way that you interact with others. It's also efficient because it allows you to learn faster because you can import from you know, past history. Uh, it also allows you to be efficient in the transmission of that. So we ask ourselves about me, Am I intelligent? Clearly, I think so. Uh, but I'm also intelligent as a part of a larger species and group of people, and we're trying to move the the species forward as well. And so I think that notion of being intelligent with others is kind of the key thing, because otherwise you you come and you go, and then it it doesn't matter. And so that's why I care about that aspect of it. And it has lots of other implications uh, one is not just you know building something intelligent with others but understanding that you can't always communicate with those others. they have been in a room where there's a clock on the wall that you haven't seen, which means you have to spend an enormous amount of time communicating with one another constantly uh, in order to figure out what the other what each other wants right so I mean this is why people project right you project your own intentions and your own reasons for doing things onto others as a way of understanding them so that you know you know how to behave but by the way you completely predictable person, I don't know how you're predictable. I don't know you well enough, but you probably eat the same five things over and over again or whatever it is that you do, right? Uh, I know I do. Uh, if I'm going to a new Chinese restaurant, I will get General Gao's chicken because that's yeah, the thing that's easy to get. I will get hot and sour soup. You know, the, the, the people do the things that they do, but other people get the chicken and broccoli yeah. i can push this analogy way too far uh the chicken and broccoli i don't know
0: what's uh, wrong with those people i don't yeah. know
1: what's wrong with them either not we have all had our trauma uh so they <laughs> get their chicken and broccoli and their egg drop soup or whatever yeah. um we got to communicate and it's going to change right so it's not interactive ai is not just about learning to solve a problem or a task it's about having to adapt that over time over a very long period of time and in interacting with other people. Who will themselves change? This is what we mean about things like adaptable models, right? That you have to have a model. That model is going to change. And by the way, it's not just the case that you're different from that person, but you're different from the person you were 15 minutes ago, or certainly 15 years ago. And I have to assume that you're at least going to drift. Hopefully, not too many discontinuities, but you're going to you're going to drift over time. And and I have to have some mechanism for adapting to that as you and an individual over time, and across individuals over time.
0: On on the topic of adaptive modeling and you talk about lifelong learning, which is a, I think, a topic that's understudied, or maybe because nobody knows what to do with it. Uh, but like you know, if you look at Alexa or most of our artificial intelligence systems that are primarily machine learning-based systems or dialogue systems, all those kinds of things, they know very little about you mm-hmm. in the sense of the lifelong learning sense that uh, we learn as humans, we learn a lot about each other, not in the quantity effects, but like the temporally rich set of information that seems to like pick up the crumbs along the way that somehow seems to capture a person pretty well. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas how to uh, to do lifelong learning? Uh, Because it seems like most of the machine learning community does not.
1: No, oh, well, by the way, not only does the machine learning community not not spend a lot of time on lifelong learning, they don't. I don't think they spend a lot of time on um, learning period in the sense that they tend to be very task focused. Everybody is overfitting to whatever problem is they happen to have. They're over-engineering their solutions to the task. Even the people, and I think these people do, um, are trying to solve a hard problem of transfer learning. Right? I'm going to learn on one task and learn the other task. It's, you still end up creating the task. You know, it's like looking for your keys where the light is because that's where the light is. Right? It's not because the keys have to be there. I mean, and one could argue that we tend to do this in general. We tend to kind of do it, as a group. We tend to hill climb and get stuck in local optima. Um, and I think we do this in the small, the small as well. I think it's very hard to do um, because. So, <laughs> look, here's the hard thing about AI, right? The hard thing about AI is it keeps changing on us, right? You know, what is AI? AI is the, you know, the art and science of making computers act the way they do in the movies, right? That's what it is, right? (laughs) That's a good definition. But but beyond that, And they keep coming
0: up with new movies. Yes, and they just, just, right, exactly.
1: We are driven by this kind of need to uh, the sort of ineffable quality of who we are, which means that the moment you understand something is no longer AI. Right? Well, like we understand this, that's just, you take the derivative and you divide by two and then you, you average it out over time in the window, so therefore that's no longer AI. So the problem is unsolvable because it keeps kind of going away. This creates a kind of illusion, which I don't think is an entire illusion, of either there's very simple task-based things you can do very well and over-engineer, there's all of AI and there's like nothing in the middle. Like it's very hard to get from here to here and it's very hard to see how to get from here to here. And I don't think that we've done a very good job of it because we get stuck trying to solve the small problem that's in front of it, myself included, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm better at this than anyone else. Um, and of course, all the incentives in academia um, and in industry are set to make that very hard because you, you have to get the next paper out, you have to get the next product out, you have to solve this problem, and it's very sort of naturally incremental. And none of the, the incentives are set up to allow you to take a huge risk unless you're already so well-established you can take that big risk. Um, and if you're that well-established that you can take that big risk, then you've probably spent much of your career taking these little risks, relatively speaking, and so you have got a lifetime of experience telling you not to take that particular big risk, right? So the whole system's set up to make progress very slow. That's fine. It's just the way it is, but it does make this gap seem really big, which is my long way of saying I don't have a great answer to it, except that stop doing N equals 1, at least try to get N equal two and maybe N equal seven so that you can say, I'm gonna, or maybe T is a better variable here. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna not just solve this problem, I'm gonna solve this problem and another problem. I'm not gonna learn just on you. I'm gonna keep living out there in the world and just seeing what happens and that we'll learn something as designers and our machine learning algorithms um, and our AI algorithms um, can learn as well. But unless you're willing to build a system which you're gonna have live for months at a time in an environment that is messy and chaotic, you cannot control, uh, then you're never going to make progress in that direction. So I guess my answer to you is yes. My idea is that you should, it's not no, it's yes, you should be deploying these things and making them live for months at a time and be okay with the fact that it's going to take you five years to do this. Not rerunning the same experiment over and over again and refining the machine so it's slightly better at whatever, but actually having it out there and living in the chaos of the world um, and seeing what it's learning algorithm, say, can learn, what data structure it can build and, and how it can go from there. Without that, you're gonna be stuck ultimately.
0: What do you think about the possibility of n equals one growing, is it probably crude approximation, but growing like if you look at language models like GPT-3, mm-hmm. if you just make it big enough, it'll swallow the world, meaning like it'll solve all your T to infinity by just growing in size. Uh, of this, taking the small over-engineered solution and just pumping it full of steroids in terms of compute, in terms of size of training data, and the Yann LeCun style self-supervised or OpenAI self-supervised, mm-hmm. just throw all of YouTube at it, and it will learn how to reason, how to paint, how to create music, how to love all of that by watching YouTube videos.
1: I mean. I can't think of a more terrifying world to live in than a world that is based on YouTube videos. But yeah, I think, I think the answer, that I just kind of don't think that'll quite, well, it won't work that easily, right? You will get somewhere and you will learn something, which means it's probably worth it, but you won't get there. You won't solve the, you know, here's the thing. We build these things and we say we want them to learn. But what actually happens, and let's say they do learn, I mean, certainly every paper I've gotten published. The things learn. I don't know about <laughs> anyone else, um, but they actually change us, right? We react to it differently, right? So we keep redefining what it means to be successful, both in the negative, in the case, but also in the positive. In that, oh well, this is this is a this is an uh, accomplishment. I'll give you an example, which is like the one you just described, with you to. Let's let's get completely out of machine learning. Well, not completely, but mostly out of machine learning. Think about Google. People were trying to solve information retrieval, the ad hoc information retrieval problem forever. I mean, first major book I ever read about it was, what, 71? Um, I think it was when it came out. Anyway, it's, you know, we'll treat everything as a vector and we'll do, we'll do these vector space models and whatever. And, and that was all great. And we made very little progress. I mean, we made some progress. And then Google comes and makes the ad hoc problem seem pretty easy. I mean, it's not. There's lots of computers and databases involved. But, you know, and there's some brilliant algorithmic stuff behind it too and some systems building. Um, But the problem changed, right? If you've got a world that's that connected so that you have, you know, there are 10 million answers, quite literally, to the question that you're asking, then the problem wasn't, give me the things that are relevant. The problem is, don't give me anything that's irrelevant, at least in the first page, because nothing else matters. So Google is not solving the information retrieval problem, at least not on this webpage, Google is minimizing false positives, which is not the same thing as getting an answer. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's good enough for what it is we wanna use Google for, but it also changes what the problem was we thought we were trying to solve in the first place. You thought you were trying to find an answer, but you're not, where you're trying to find the answer, but it turns out you're just trying to find an answer. Now, yes, it is true, it's also very good at finding you exactly that webpage. Of course, you trained yourself to figure out what the keywords were to get you that webpage. Um, but in the end, by having that much data, you've just changed the problem into something else. you haven't actually learned what you set out to learn now, the counter to that would be maybe we're not doing that either. We just think we are uh, because you know we're in our own heads maybe we're 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 learning the wrong problem in the first place, but I don't think that matters. I think the point is is that Google has not solved information retrieval. Google has done amazing service. I have nothing bad to say about what they've done. Lord knows my entire life is better because Google exists. Informed um, for Google Maps, I don't think I would have ever found this place. <laughs> like, where is this? Like ninety-five. <laughs> I see hundred and ten, and I see, but where, where, where did where ninety-five <laughs> go? Um, you know, so I'm very I'm very grateful for Google. But you know, they just have to make certain the first five things are right, yeah. and everything after that is wrong. Look, you know, we're going off in a totally different Let's topic go. here, but but. Think about the way we hire faculty. It's exactly Uh-oh. the same thing. you <laughs> getting controversial, not getting controversial. Um it's exactly the same problem, right? It's minimizing false positives. Hmm. We say things like, we want to find the best person to be an assistant professor at MIT yes. in the new college of computing, yes. which I will point out was founded thirty years after the college of computing I'm a part of oh. Both, uh, my, both of my alma mater. That both, both are team fighting team. words. I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> I appreciate all that they did um, and all that they're doing. Um, anyway, so Some we're true. gonna <laughs> we're gonna try to we're gonna try to hire the best professor. That's what we say, the best person for this job. But that's not what we do at all, right? Yeah. Do you know which percentage of faculty in the top four earn their PhDs from the top four? Say in 2017. For which we have, which is the most recent year for which I have data. Maybe a large percentage. It's
0: about 60%.
1: 60. 60% of the faculty in the top four earn their PhDs in the top four. This is computer science. Yeah. For which there is no top five. There's only a top four, right? Because they're all tied for one.
0: For people who don't know, by the way, that would be MIT Stanford, Berkeley, CMU. Yep. Uh, Sorry, Georgia Tech. Uh, it's number eight. Number 8 you mm-hmm. You're keeping track.
1: Oh, yes. It's a large part of my job. Number five is Illinois. Number six is a tie with... Uh, um, UW and Cornell and Princeton and Georgia Tech are tied for eight and UT Austin is number 10. Ah. Michigan's number 11, by the way. So if you look at the top 10, you know what percentage of faculty in the top 10 earn their PhDs from the top 10? Hmm. 65, roughly, 65%. If you look at the top 55 ranked departments, 50% of the faculty earn their PhDs from the top 10. There's no universe in which all the best faculty, even just for R1 universities, the majority of them come from 10 places. There's just no way that's true, especially when you consider how small some of those universities are in terms of the number of PhDs they produce. Yeah. Now, that's not a negative. I mean, it is a negative. It also has a habit of entrenching certain historical uh, inequities and, and accidents. Yeah. Yeah. But what it tells you is, well, ask yourself the question, why is it like that? Well, because it's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go all the way back to the 1980s, you know, there was a saying that you know, nobody ever lost his job buying a computer from IBM, and it was true. Well, nobody ever lost their job hiring a PhD from MIT, right? If the person turned out to be terrible, well, you know, they came from MIT, what did you expect me to know? However, that same person, coming from pick whichever is your least favorite place that produces PhDs in, say, computer science, well, you took a risk right? So all the incentives, particularly because you're only going to hire one this year, well, now we're hiring 10, but you know, you're only going to hire one or two or three this year. And by the way, when they come in, you're stuck with them for at least seven years in most places, because that's before you know whether they're getting tenure or not. And if they get tenure, you're stuck with them for a good 30 years unless they decide to leave. That means the pressure to get this right is very high. So what are you going to do? You're going to minimize false positives. You don't care about saying no inappropriately. You only care about saying yes inappropriately. So all the pressure drives you into that particular direction. Google, not to put too fine a point on it, was in exactly the same situation with their search. It turns out you just don't wanna give people the wrong page in the first three or four pages. And if there's 10 million right answers and 100 bazillion wrong answers, just make certain the wrong answers don't get up there and who cares if you, the right answer was actually the 13th page a right answer, a satisfying answer is number one, two, three, or four. So
0: who cares? Or an answer that will make you discover something beautiful, profound to your question. Well,
1: that's a different problem, right?
0: But isn't that the problem? Can we linger on this topic sure. without uh, sort of uh, walking with grace? How do we get, for fa- for hiring faculty, how do we get that 13th page with the uh, with a truly special person? Like... There's, I mean, it depends on the department. Computer science probably has those department, uh, those uh, kinds of people. Like you have the Russian guy, uh, Grigory Perlman, mm-hmm. like just these awkward, strange minds that don't know how to play the little game of etiquette that. Uh, that faculty have all agreed somehow like converged over the decades, how to play with each other. And also is not, you know, on top of that is not from the top four, top, whatever numbers, the schools and, and, and maybe actually just says a few every once in a while to the, uh, to the traditions of old within the computer science community, maybe talks trash about machine learning is a total waste of time. And and, and that's there on the resume. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like how. How do you allow the system to give those folks a chance?
1: Well, you have to be willing to take a certain kind of, without taking a particular position on any particular person, you'd have to take, uh, you have to be willing to take risk, right? A small amount of risk. I mean, if we were treating this as a, well, as a machine learning problem, right? As a search problem, which is what it is. It's a search problem. If we were treating it that way, you would say, oh, well, the main thing is you want, you know, you've got a prior, you want some data, because I'm Bayesian. If you don't want to do it that way, we'll just inject some, Randomness in, mm. and it'll be okay. The anyway. problem is that feels very, very hard to do with people. Um, yes, all the incentives are wrong there. Uh, but it turns out, and let's say, let's say that's the right answer, let's just give, for the sake of argument, that you know, injecting randomness mm. in the system at that level for who you hire is just not not worth doing, because the price is too high or the cost is too high. If we had infinite resources, sure, but we don't. And also, you've got to teach people. So you know, you're ruining other people's lives if you get it too wrong. Um. But we've taken that principle, even if I grant it, and pushed it all the way back, right? So uh, we could have a better pool than we have of people we look at and give yeah. an opportunity to. Sure. Um, if we do that, then we have a better chance of finding that. Of course, that just pushes the problem back a, back another level. But let let me tell you something else, you know. Um, I did a sort of study. I call it a study. I called up eight of my friends and asked them for all of their data for graduate admissions. But then someone else followed up and did an actual study, um, and it turns yeah. out that I can tell you how everybody gets into grad school, more or less. More or less, you basically admit everyone from places higher ranked than you. You admit most people from places ranked around you, and you admit almost no one from places ranked below you, with the exception of the small liberal arts colleges that aren't ranked at all, like Harvey Mudd, because they don't—they have PhDs, so they aren't ranked. Um, this is all CS. Um, which means the decision of whether, you know, you become a professor at Cornell uh, was determined when you were seventeen, right? By where, what you knew to go to undergrad to do whatever, right? So if we can push these things back a little bit and just make the pool a little bit bigger, at least you raise the probability that you will be able to see someone interesting and 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 take the risk. The other answer to that question, by the way, um, which you could argue is the same, is you either adjust the pool so the probabilities go up. That's a way of injecting a little bit of uniform, uniform noise in the system, as it were, uh, is you change your loss function. You just let yourself be measured by something other than whatever it is that we're measuring ourselves by now. I mean, US News and World Report, every time they change their formula for determining rankings, move entire universities to behave differently
0: because rankings matter. Can you talk trash about uh, those rankings for a second? No, I'm joking about talking trash. I, I actually, it's it's so funny how, from my perspective, from a very shallow perspective, how dogmatic, like how much I trust those rankings. They're they're almost ingrained in my head. Mm-hmm. I mean, at MIT, everybody kind of, it, it's a it's a propagated, uh, mutually agreed upon, like idea that those rankings matter. And I don't think anyone knows what they're, uh, like most people don't know what they're based on. And what are they exactly based on and what are the flaws in that?
1: Well, so it depends on um, which rankings you're talking about. Do you wanna talk about computer science or
0: we will talk about university? Computer science, US News, isn't that the main one? Yeah, US News. Have... The
1: only one that matters is US News, nothing yeah. else matters. Sorry csrankings.org, but nothing yeah. else matters But uh, but US News. So US News has formula that it uses for many things, But not for computer science because computer science is considered a science, which is absurd. So the Uh rankings for computer science is 100% reputation. So two people at each department, it's not really department, whatever, at each department basically rank everybody. Slightly more complicated than that, but whatever, they rank everyone. And then those things are put together and then somehow.
0: So that means how do you improve reputation? How do you move up and down the space of reputation?
1: Yes, that's exactly the question. Twitter? <laughs> it can help. <laughs> I can tell you how Georgia Tech did it, or at least how yeah. I think Georgia Tech did yes. it, because um, I, Georgia Tech is actually the case to look at. Not just because I'm at Georgia Tech, but because Georgia Tech is the only computing unit that was not in the top 20 that has made it into the top 10. It's also the only one in the last two decades, I think, um, that moved up in the top 10, as opposed to having someone else move down. So we used to be number ten, and then we became number nine because UT Austin went down slightly, and now we were tied for ninth because that's how rankings work. Uh, and we moved from nine to eight because our raw score moved up a point. So Georgia, something, something, something about Georgia Tech computer science or computing, anyway. Um, I think it's because we have shown leadership at every crisis level, right? So we created a college, first public university to do it, second college, second university to do it after CMU is number one. I also think it's no um, accident that CMU is the largest and we're, depending upon how you count and depending on exactly where MIT ends up with its final college of computing, second or third largest. I don't think that's an accident. We've been doing this for a long time. Uh, But in the 2000s when there was a crisis about undergraduate education, Georgia Tech took a big risk and succeeded at rethinking undergrad education and computing. Um, I think we we created these schools at a time when most public universities anywhere were afraid to do it. We did the online masters, um, and that mattered because people were trying to figure out what to do with MOOCs and so on. I think it's about being observed by your peers and having an impact. So, I mean, that is what reputation is, right? So, the way you move up in the reputation rankings is by doing something that makes people turn and look at you and say, that's good. They're better than I thought. Yeah. Beyond that, it's just inertia. I and mean, there's a huge hysteresis in the system, right? Like, I mean, there was these I can't remember this, this may be apocryphal, but the, you know, there were there's a a major or a department that like MIT was ranked number one in and they didn't have it. Right. <laughs> it's just about what you I don't know if that's <laughs> true, but someone said that to me anyway. Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a thing, right? It's all about reputation. Of course MIT is great. Because MIT is great, it's always yeah. been great. By the way, because MIT is great, the best students come, which keeps it being great. I mean, it's just a positive feedback loop. But not, it's not surprising. I don't think it's wrong.
0: Yeah, but it's I'm, almost like a narrative. Like it, it doesn't actually have to be backed by reality. And it's a, a, you know, not to say anything about MIT, but like it, it does feel like we're playing in the space of narratives, not the space of some. Something grounded, and like one of the surprising things when I showed up at MIT and just all the students I've worked with and all the research I've done is, it like they're the same people as I've met other places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, what MIT
1: is going for? It, well, MIT has many things going for it. But one of the things MIT is going for it is nice logo. It's a nice logo. It's a lot better than it was when I was here. Uh, nice colors too. Terrible. Terrible name for a mascot. But the, the thing that MIT has going for it is it really does get the best students. It just doesn't get all of the best students. There are many more best students out there, right? Um, and the best students want to be here because it's the best place to be or one of the best places to be. And it just kind of, it's a sort of positive feedback. But you said something earlier, which I think is worth examining for a moment, right? You said it's, I forget the word you used. You said, uh, we're living in the space of narrative as opposed to something objective. Narrative is objective. I mean, one could argue that the only thing that we do as humans is narrative. We just build stories to we explain why we do, profound. we do Someone once asked me, but wait, there's nothing objective. No, it's completely an objective measure. It's an objective measure of the opinions of everybody else. Yeah, now, is that physics? I don't know. But, you know, what, I mean, tell me something you think is actually objective and measurable in a way that makes sense. Like cameras. They don't, do you know that, I mean, you're getting me off on something, but do you know that um, cameras, which are just reflecting light and putting them on film, like did not work for dark skinned people until like the 1970s? Mm-hmm. You know why? Because you were building cameras for the people who were going to buy cameras, who all, at least in the United States and Western Europe, were relatively light skinned. Turns out took terrible pictures of people who look like me. Uh that got fixed with better film and, and whole processes. Do you know why? Because furniture manufacturers wanted to be able to take pictures of mahogany furniture, right? Because candy manufacturers wanted to be able to take pictures of chocolate. Now, the reason I bring that up is because you might think that cameras are objective. They're objective. They're just capturing light. No, they're. Made they—they they are doing the things that they are doing based upon decisions by real human beings to privilege, if I may use that word, some physics over others because it's an engineering problem. You, there are trade-offs, right? So I can either worry about this part of the spectrum or this part of the spectrum. This costs more, that costs less. This costs the same, but I have more people paying money over here, right? Okay. And it turns out that you know if a giant, you know, conglomerate wants you demands that you do something different and it's going to involve all kinds of money for you, suddenly the trade-offs change, right? Um, and so there you go. I actually don't know how I ended up there. Oh, it's because of this notion of objectiveness, right? Yeah. So so even the objective isn't objective because at the end, you've got to tell a story. You've got to make decisions. You've got to make trade-offs. And what else is engineering other than that? So I think that the rankings capture something. They just don't necessarily capture what people assume they
0: capture. You know, just to linger on this this idea, why is there not more people who just like play with whatever that narrative is, have fun with it, have like excite the world, whether it's in the Carl Carl Sagan style Mm -hmm. of like that calm, sexy voice of explaining the stars and all the romantic stuff, or, or the Elon Musk, dare I even say Donald Trump, where you're like trolling and shaking up the system and just saying controversial things. Um i that like I, I talked to Lisa Feldman Barrett who's a neuroscientist who just enjoys playing the the controversy, thinks like co- like finds the counterintuitive ideas in the particular science mm-hmm. and throws them out there and sees how they play in the public discourse like why don't we see more of that, and why doesn't academia attract like and get Elon Musk type?
1: well, tenure is a powerful thing that allows you to do whatever you want, but getting tenure typically requires you to be relatively narrow, right? Because yeah. people are judging you. Well, I think the answer is, we, we have told ourselves a story, a narrative, that that is vulgar, what you just described as vulgar. It's certainly unscientific, right? And it is easy to convince yourself that in some ways you're the mathematician, right? Mm-hmm. The fewer there are in your major, the more that proves your purity. Right, yeah, so once <laughs> yes. you tell yourself that story, then it is beneath you to do that kind of thing, right? I think that's wrong. I think that, and by the way, everyone doesn't have to do, this, everyone's not good at it, and everyone, even if they would be good at, it, would enjoy it, yeah, so it's fine. But I do think you need some diversity in the way that people choose to relate to the world as academics, because I think the great universities are ones that engage with the rest of the world it is a home for public intellectuals yes and in 2020 being a public intellectual probably means being on Twitter uh, whereas of course that wasn't true 20 years ago because well Twitter wasn't around and 20 years ago and if it was it wasn't around in a meaningful way I don't actually know how long Twitter has been around as I get older I find that my my notion of Ta- time has gotten worse and worse like Google really has been around that long anyway the point is that um, I think that I think that we sometimes forget that a part of our job is to impact the people who aren't in the world that we're in yeah. and that that's the point of being at a great place and being a great person frankly
0: there's an interesting force in terms of public intellectuals you know forget twitter we could look at just online courses that are public facing in some part mm-hmm. like there is a kind of force that pulls you back I, I would let me just call it out because I don't give a damn at this point. Um, it's there's a little bit of all of us have this, but certainly faculty have this, which is jealousy. Mm-hmm. It's whoever is popular at being a good communicator, exciting the world with their science, and of course, when you excite the world with the science, it's not peer-reviewed, clean. It's it's It all sounds like bullshit. It's like a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people roll their eyes and they they hate that a TED Talk gets millions of views or something like that. And then everybody pulls each other back. There's this force that's just kind of, it's hard to stand out unless you like win a Nobel Prize or whatever. Like you, it's only when you like get senior enough where you just stop giving a damn. But just like you said, even when you get tenure, that was always the surprising thing to me. I have many colleagues and friends who have gotten tenure, but there's not a switch. uh, You know, there's not an F you money switch (laughs) Mm. where you're like, you know what? Now I'm going to be more bold. It doesn't, I don't see it.
1: Well, there's a reason for that. Tenure isn't a test, it's a training process it teaches you to behave in a certain way, to think in a certain way, to accept certain values and to react accordingly. And the better you are at that, the more likely you are to earn tenure. And by the way, this is not a bad thing. Most things are like that. Um, And I think most of my colleagues are interested in doing great work and they're just having impact in the way that they want to have impact. I do think that as a field, not just as a field, as a profession, we have a habit of belittling those who are popular, as it were, um, as if the word itself is a kind of Scarlet A, right? I think um, (laughs) it's easy to convince yourself, uh, and no one is immune to this, that the people who are better known are better known for bad reasons. Um, The people who are out there dumbing it down are not being pure to whatever the values and ethos. Is for your field, and it's just very easy to do. Now, having said that, I think that ultimately, uh, people who are able to be uh, popular and out there and are touching the world and making a difference—you uh, know, our colleagues do in fact appreciate that in the long run. Um, it's just you know you have to be very good at it, or you have to be very interested in pursuing it. And once you get past a certain level, I think people people accept that for who it is. I mean, I don't know. I'd be really interested in how Rod Brooks felt about. Uh, how people were interacting with him when he did Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control uh, way, way, way back when.
0: Uh, What's Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control?
1: It was a documentary mm-hmm. that involved four people. I remember nothing about it other than Rod Brooks was in it and something about uh, naked mole rats. <laughs> can't remember what the other two things were. It was yeah. robots, naked mole rats, and then two other.
0: By the way, Rod Brooks was, used to be the head of the uh, Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT yep. and then uh, uh, launched, I think, iRobot and then mm-hmm. Think Robotics. Rethink Robotics? Yes, think. sir, yes. So, think is in the word, and uh, and also is uh, a little bit of a rock star personality in the AI world, a very opinionated, very intelligent. Anyway, sorry, mall rats and naked
1: naked mole rat. also he was one of my two advisors yes. for my
0: phd uh so yeah, this explains a lot no, <laughs> i don't know what it <laughs> explains uh
1: i love rod but um i also love my other advisor paul paul if you're listening i love you too both very very paul, different people paul Viola. paul Viola. both very interesting people very different in many ways um but i don't know what rod would say to you uh, about how what the reaction was i know that for the, the students at the time because i was a student at the time it was amazing Right. Mm-hmm. This guy was on um, in a movie, um, being very much himself. Actually, the movie version of him is a little bit more Rod than Rod. Uh, I mean, I, I think they, they edited it appropriately for him, uh, but it was very much Rod. And he did all this while doing great work. I mean, he was running, uh, yep. was he running the lab at that point or not? I don't know. But anyway, he was running the iLab or uh, would be soon. Um, he's a giant in the field. He did amazing things, made a lot of his bones by doing the kind of uh, counterintuitive science, right? And saying, no, you're doing this all wrong. Representation is crazy. The world is your own representation. You just react to it. I mean, these are amazing things um, and continues to, to do those, those sorts of things as he's, as he's moved on. I have, um, I think he might tell you, I don't know if he would tell you it was good or bad, but I, I know that for everyone else out there in the world, it was a good thing. And certainly he continued to be respected. So it's not as if it destroyed his career by being popular.
0: All right, let, let's go into a, a topic where I'm on thin ice because I grew up in the Soviet Union and Russia. My, my knowledge of music uh, this American thing you guys do uh, is uh, is 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 quite foreign. So, uh, your research group is called, as we've talked about, uh, the lab for interactive artificial intelligence. But also, there's just a bunch of mystery around this. Uh, my research fails me. Also called PFunk. Yep. P stands for probabilistic. Mm-hmm. And what does Funk stand for?
1: So a lot of my life is about making acronyms. So if I have one quirk, it's that people will say words and I see if they make acronyms. Ah. And if they do, uh, then I'm happy. And then if they don't, I try to change it so that they make acronyms. It's just a thing that I do. Uh, so P Funk is an acronym. It has three or four different meanings. Uh, but finally I decided that the P stands for probabilistic because at the end of the day, it's machine learning and it's randomness and it's uncertainty, which is the important thing here. Yes. Uh, and the funk can be lots of different things but I decided I should leave it up to the individual to, to figure out exactly what it is. But I will tell you that when my students graduate, when they get out, as we say, at, at, at Tech, um, I hand them, uh, they put on a hat mm-hmm. and star glasses and uh, a medallion from the P-Funk era, um, and we take a picture, and I hand them okay. a pair of uh, fuzzy dice,
0: which they get to keep so there's a sense to it which is not an acronym like literally funk there's a you have a dark mysterious past mm-hmm. <laughs> uh oh well, it's not dark it's just fun as in uh hip-hop and funk yep so can you educate a uh, soviet-born russian about this thing called hip-hop like if you were to uh Give me, like, you know, if we went on a journey together and you were trying to educate me about, especially, um, the, you know, the past couple of decades in the 90s about hip hop or funk, what records or artists would you, uh, would, would you introduce me to? Would you, uh, well, would you tell me about, or maybe what influenced you in your journey or what you just love? Like when, when, when the family's gone and you just sit back and just blast some stuff these days, uh, what do you listen to?
1: Well, so I listen to a lot, but I will tell you, well, first off, all great music was made when I was 14. And that statement right. is true for all people, no matter how old they are or where they live. But uh, for me, the first thing that's worth pointing out is that hip hop and rap aren't the same thing. So depending on who you talk to about this, and there are people who feel very strongly about this, much well, more strongly
0: than You're I offending do.
1: everybody in this conversation, so this is great. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> hip hop is culture yeah it's a whole set of things of which rap is
0: a part so tagging is a part
1: of hip-hop i don't know why that's true but people tell me it's true and i'm willing to go along with it because they get very angry about it but hip-hop is is
0: like graffiti tagging
1: is like graffiti uh and there's all these including the popping and the locking and all the dancing and all those things that's all a part of hip-hop it's a way of life uh which i think is true and then there's rap which is this particular
0: it's the music part yes or a music part Yeah, yeah
1: Um, I mean, you wouldn't call the stuff that DJs do the scratching. That's not rap, right? But it's a part of hip-hop, right? So given that we understand that hip-hop is this whole thing, what are the rap albums that best touch that for me? Well, if I were going to educate you, I would try to figure out what you liked, and then I would work you there. Leonard Uh,
0: Skinner. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I,
1: I would probably start
0: with... uh zeppelin
1: there's a fascinating exercise. no it's okay there's a fascinating exercise one can do by watching old episodes of uh i love the 70s i love the 80s i love the 90s um with a bunch of friends and just see where people come in and out of pop culture so if you're talking about um those people then i would actually start you with um where i would hope to start you with anyway which is public enemy particularly it takes a nation of millions to hold us back which is Clearly the best album ever produced, um, and certainly the best hip-hop album ever produced, um, in part because it was so much of what was great about the time. Uh, fantastic lyrics because me it's all about the lyrics. Um, amazing music that was coming from Rick Rubin was the was the producer of that, and he did a lot, very kind of heavy metal-ish at least in the 80s sense uh, at the time. Uh, and it was focused on um, uh, politics in the 1980s, which was what made hip-hop so great then. I would start you there, then I would move you up through things that have been happening more recently, I'd probably get you to someone like a Most Deaf. I would give you a history most lesson, deaf, basically. Yeah. Most Deaf's amazing.
0: So, he hosted a poetry jam thing on HBO or something like that? Uh, probably. I don't yeah. think I've seen it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, spoken poetry. Yes. Yeah, kind of oh, th- th-
1: he's amazing. He's uh, amazing. And then I would, I, after I got you there, I'd work you back to EPMD. Uh, and eventually, I would take you back to The Last Poets, and particularly their first album. The Last Poets, which was 1970, to give you a sense of history and that that it actually has been building up over uh, a very, very long time. So we would start there because that's where your music aligns. And then we would cycle out and I'd move you to the present and then I'd take you back to the past. And Because I think a large part of people who are kind of confused about any kind of music, you know, the the truth is this is the same thing we've always been talking about, right? It's about narrative and being a part of something and being immersed in something so you understand it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jazz, which I also like is, one of the things that's cool about jazz is that you come and you meet someone who's talking to you about jazz and you have no idea what they're talking about. And then one day it all clicks and you've been so immersed in it, you go, oh yeah, that's a Charlie Parker. and You start using words that nobody else understands, right? And it becomes part of, hip hop's the same way. Everything's the same way. They're all cultural artifacts. But I would help you to see that there's a history of it and how it connects to other genres of music that you might like to bring you in um, so that you could kind of see how it connects to what you already like, including, uh, some of the good work that's been done with fusions of uh hip hop and bluegrass oh no yes <laughs> some of it's even good <laughs> not all of it but some of it is good but i'd start you with t- it takes a nation to make a whole us back
0: there's an interesting tradition in like more modern hip hop of um integrating almost like classic rock songs or whatever like integrating t- into the into their mu- uh, music into the beat into mm-hmm. the whatever it's kind of interesting. It it gives a whole new, uh, not just classic rock, but what is it, uh, like a Kanye with Gold Digger, the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> <like> old R and B, taking and pulling old R and B, right? And well, that's been true since the beginning. That, I mean, in
1: fact, that's in some ways that's why the DJ used to get hmm. top billing. Because it was the DJ that, that brought all the records together and made it worth so that people could dance. If you, you know, you go back, you go back to those days, mostly in New York, uh, though not exclusively, but mostly in New York where it sort of came out of. Uh, you know, it was the DJ that brought all the music together and the beats and and showed that basically music is itself an instrument, very meta. Uh, and you can bring it together and then you sort of rap over it and, and so on. And it sort of it, it, it moved that way. So that's going way way back. Now, in the period of time where I grew up, when I became really into it. Um, which was most of the 80s, it was more funk was the back for a lot of the stuff, public enemy at that time notwithstanding. Uh, And so, which is very nice because it tied into what my parents listened to and what I vaguely remember listening to when I was very small. Uh, So, and by the way, complete revival of George Clinton and Parliament and Funkadelic and all of those things uh, to bring it sort of back into the 80s and into the 90s. And as we go on, you're going to see, you know, the last decade and the decade before that being brought in. And when you don't think that you're hearing something you've heard, it's probably because it's being sampled by someone who, um, referring to something they remembered uh, when they were young, perhaps from somewhere else altogether, mm. and you just didn't realize what it was uh, because it wasn't a popular song where you happened to grow up. So this stuff has been going on for a long time. It's one of the things that I think is beautiful. Run DMC, Jam Master Jay used to play. He played piano. He would record himself playing piano and then sample that to make it a part of what was going on, rather than play the piano. That's how his mind can think. More well, it's pieces. Like, You're putting pieces yeah. together. You're putting pieces of music together to create new music, right? Now that doesn't mean that the root. I mean, the roots are doing their own thing. Yeah. Right. Those,
0: those. Those are. That's a whole.
1: Yeah. But still, it's the right attitude that you know. And what else is jazz, right? Jazz is about putting pieces together and then putting your own spin on it. Right? It's all the same. It's all the same thing. It's all the same
0: thing, you know. Because you mentioned lyrics, it it does make me sad. Again, this is me talking trash about modern hip hop. Like I, I haven't, you know, investigated. I'm sure people will correct me that there's a lot of great artists. That's part of the reason I'm saying it is mm-hmm. they'll leave it in the comments that you should listen to this person. Is the lyrics went away from, uh, talking about maybe not just politics but life and so on. Like you, you know, the kind of like protest songs, even if you look at like a Bob Marley, mm-hmm. or you said Public Enemy, or Rage Against the Machine, more on the rock side. There's, I, th- that's the place where we go to those lyrics. Like classic rock is all about like, my woman left me, or or I'm really happy that she's still with me, or the flip side. It's like love songs of different kinds. It's all mm-hmm. love, but it's less political, like less interesting, I would say, in terms of like deep, profound knowledge. and. It seems like rap is the place where you would find that, and it, it's sad that, for the most part, what I see, like you look at like mumble rap or whatever, they're moving away from lyrics and more towards the beat and the and the musicality of it.
1: I've always been a fan of the lyrics. In fact, if you go back and you read my reviews, which I recently was rereading, man, fuck, I wrote my last review the month I graduated. When I got my PhD. It says something about something. I'm not sure what though. Uh, I always would. Well, I not always, but I often would start with "It's all about the lyrics." And for me, it's all it's about the lyrics. Um, someone has already written in the comments before I've even finished having this conversation that you know neither of us knows what we're talking about, and it's <laughs> all in the underground hip hop. And here's yes. who you should go listen to. And that is true. Every time I despair for popular rap, yeah. I, someone points me to or I discover um, some underground hip hop song, and, and I am. I am made happy and whole again. So I know it's out there. Um, I don't listen to it as much as I used to uh, because I'm listening to podcasts and old music from the 1980s Kind of and rap. 90s. no beat It's though. a kind of, no, no <laughs> beat at all. But you know, there's a little bit of sampling here and there, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> uh, by the way, James Brown is funk or no?
1: Yes, and so is Junior Wells, by the way.
0: Who's that? Ah, oh, I'm Junior
1: sorry. Wells, Chicago Blues.
0: Oh. Uh,
1: he was James Brown before James Brown was.
0: It's hard to imagine somebody being James Brown.
1: Go look up Hoodoo uh, Man Blues. Junior Wells. Uh and uh just listen listen to snatch it back and hold it. And you'll see it. And they they were contemporaries.
0: Where do you put like Little Richard or all that kind of stuff like uh, Ray Charles like when they, they get like uh hit the road jack and don't you come back isn't that like there's a funkiness in it? Oh, that's
1: no, definitely a funkiness in it. Yeah. I mean, it's all I mean, it's all it's all a line. I mean, yeah. it's all there's all a line that carries it all together. You know, it's. I guess I would answer your question. Depending on whether I'm thinking about it in 2020 or I'm thinking about it in 1960, um, I'd right. probably give a different answer. I'm just thinking in terms of you know what that was rock, but when you look back on it, it's it was funky. Yeah. But we didn't use those words, or maybe we did. I wasn't around. Uh, but you know, I don't think we used the word 1960 funk. Certainly not the way we used it in the 70s and the 80s.
0: Do but. you reject disco?
1: I do not reject disco. I appreciate all the mistakes that we have made to get where we right are now. <laughs> actually, some of the disco is actually really, really good.
0: John Travolta, oh boy, he regrets it probably. Maybe not. <laughs> well, well, like it's the mistakes thing,
1: been. yeah. It's, it's, and it got him to where he's going, where yeah. he is.
0: <laughs> oh well, thank you for taking that detour. You've you've talked about computing. We're, we've already talked about computing a little bit, but can you try to describe how you think about the world of? computing where it fits into the sets of different disciplines mm-hmm. we mentioned College of computing what what should people how should they think about computing especially from an educational perspective of like what is the perfect curriculum that defines for a young mind uh, what computing is
1: so I don't know about a perfect curriculum although that's an important question because at the end of the day without the curriculum you don't get anywhere curriculum. To me, is the fundamental data structure. It's not even the classroom. It's not even, it's a, I love I mean, it. The world is a, right. I, 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 so I think the, the curriculum is where I like to play. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this. But I will tell you, I'll answer your question by answering a slightly different question first, and getting back to this, which is, you know, you talked about disciplines, and what does it mean to to be a discipline? The truth is, what we really educate people in from the beginning, but certainly through college, you have sort of failed if you don't think about it this way. I think, is the world, people often think about tools and tool sets. And when you're really trying to be good, you think about skills and skill sets. But disciplines are about mindsets, right? They're about fundamental ways of thinking, not just the 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 hammer that you pick up, whatever that is to to hit the nail, um not just the the skill of learning how to hammer well or whatever. It's the mindset of like what's the fundamental way to think about to to think about the world, right? And disciplines, different disciplines give you different mindsets, they give you different ways of sort of thinking through. So with that in mind, I think that computing, to even ask the question whether it's a discipline is you have to decide, does it have a mindset, does it have a way of thinking about the world that is different from, you know, the scientist who is doing uh, discovery and using the scientific method as a way of doing it, or the mathematician who builds abstractions and tries to find sort of steady state truths about the abstractions that may be artificial, but whatever. Or is it the engineer who's all about, you know, building demonstrably superior technology with respect to some uh, notion of trade-offs, whatever that means, right? That's sort of the world that, you, the world that you, you live in. What is computing? You know, how is computing different? So I've thought about this for a long time and I've um, come to a view about what computing actually is, what the mindset is. And, and it's, you know, it's a little abstract, but that would be appropriate for computing. I think that what distinguishes the computationalist from others is that he or she understands that models, languages, and machines are equivalent. They're the same thing. And because it's not just a model, but it's a machine that is a, an executable thing that can be described as a language, that means that it's dynamic. So it's not the it is mathematical in some sense, in the kind of sense of abstraction but it is fundamentally dynamic and executable. And the mathematician is not necessarily worried about either the dynamic part. In fact, whenever I tried to write something for mathematicians, they invariably demand that I make it static. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's a way of viewing the world that truth is a thing, right? It's not a process that continually runs, right? So that dynamic thing matters, that self-reflection of the system itself matters, and that is what computing. That is what computing brought us. So it is a science because it fund, the models fundamentally represent truths in the world. Information is a scientific thing to discover, right? Not just a mathematical conceit that that gets created. But of course, it's engineering because you're actually dealing with constraints in the world and trying to execute machines that 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 actually run. Uh, but it's also a math because you're actually worrying about these languages that describe that describes what, describe what's happening. But the fact that um, um that uh regular expressions and finite state automata, one of which feels like a machine, or at least an abstraction machine, and the other is a language that they're actually the equivalent thing. I mean, that is not a small thing. And it, mm-hmm. it permeates everything that we do, even when we're just trying to figure out how to how to do debugging. So that idea, I think, is fundamental. And we would do better if we made that more explicit. How my life has changed in my thinking about this um in the 10 or 15 years, it's, it's been since I tried to put that to paper with some colleagues, is the realization, which comes to a question you, you, uh, you actually asked me earlier, uh, which has to do with trees falling down and whether it matters, is this sort of triangle of equality, it only matters because there's a person inside the triangle, right? That what's changed about computing, computer science, whatever you want to call it, is we now have so much data and so much computational power, we're able to do really, really interesting, promising things. Uh, but the interesting and the promising kind of only matters with respect to human beings and their relationship to it. So the triangle exists. That is fundamentally computing. What makes it worthwhile and interesting and potentially world species changing is that there are human beings inside of it and intelligence that has to interact with it, that changes the data, the information that makes sense and um, gives meaning to the models, the languages, and the machines. So if the curriculum can convey that while conveying the tools and the skills that you need in order to succeed, then it is a big win. That's what I think you have to
0: do. Do you pull psychology, like these human things into that, uh, into the idea, into this framework of computing? Do you pull in psychology, neuroscience, like parts of psychology, parts of neuroscience, parts of sociology? What about philosophy? like uh, studies of human nature from different perspectives.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, it works both ways. So uh, let's take biology for a moment. It turns out a cell is basically a bunch of if-then statements yeah. if you look at it the right way, uh, which is nice because I understand if-then statements. I, I, I never really enjoyed biology, but I do understand if-then statements. And if you tell the biologist that and they begin to understand that, it actually helps them to, to think about a bunch of really cool things. There'll still be biology involved, but whatever. On the other hand, the fact of biology is in fact a bunch of the cell is a bunch of if-then statements or whatever allows the computationalist to think differently about the language in the way that we well certainly the way we would do AI and machine learning, but but it's just even the way that we think about we think about computation. So the important thing to me is as you know my engineering colleagues who are not in computer science worry about computer science eating up engineering to colleges where computer science is trapped. Um it's it's not a worry. You, you shouldn't worry about that at all. Computing is computer science computing, it's not It's central, but it's not the most important thing in the world. It's not more important. It is just key to helping others do other cool things they're gonna do. You're not gonna be a historian in 2030. You're not gonna get your PhD in history without understanding some data science and computing, because the way you're gonna get history done, in part, and I say done. The way you're going to get it done is you're going to look at data and you're going to let you're going to have a system that's going to help you to analyze things to help you to think about a better way to describe history and to understand what's going on and what it tells us about where we might be going. The same is true for psychology, same is true for all of these things. The reason I brought that up is because the philosopher has a lot to say about computing. The psychologist has a lot to say about the way humans interact with computing, right? Um, and certainly a lot about intelligence, which, at least for me, Ultimately, is kind of the goal of building these computational devices is to build something intelligent.
0: Did you think computing will eat everything in some certain sense or almost like disappear because it's part of everything?
1: Uh, it's so funny you say this. So I, I want to say it's going to metastasize, but there's kind of two ways that fields destroy themselves. One is they become super narrow. And I think we can think of fields that might be that way, um, they become pure. And we have that instinct, we have that impulse. I'm sure you can think of several people who want computer science to be this pure thing. The other way is you become everywhere and you become everything and nothing. And so everyone says, you know, I'm gonna teach Fortran for engineers or whatever, I'm gonna do this, and then you lose the thing that makes it worth studying Mm -hmm. in and of itself. The thing about computing, and this is not unique to computing, though at this point in time it is distinctive about computing, where we happen to be in 2020, is we are both a thriving major Fact, the thriving major, almost every place, and we're a service unit because people need to know the things we need to know. And our job, much as the mathematician's job, is to help you know this person over here to think like a mathematician. Much the way the point isn't the point of you taking chemistry as a freshman is not to learn chemistry; it's to learn to think like a scientist. Right? Yeah. Our job is to help them to think think like a computationalist. And we have to take both of those things very seriously. And I'm not sure that as a field, we have historically, certainly taken the second thing, that our job is to help them to think a certain way. People who aren't gonna be our major, I don't think we've taken that that very seriously at all.
0: I, I don't know if you know who Dan Carlin is, he has this podcast called Hardcore History. Yes. And I've just did an amazing um, four-hour conversation with him, mostly about Hitler. But <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I bring him up because he talks about this idea that it's possible that history as a field will become, like currently, most people study history a little bit, mm-hmm. kind of are aware of it, we have a conversation about it, different parts of it, I mean, there's a lot of criticism to say that some parts of history are being ignored, blah, 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 so on. But most people are able to to uh, are, have a curiosity and able to learn it. The, his thought is it's possible, given the way social media works, the the current way we communicate, the history becomes a niche field where literally most people just ignore because everything is happening so fast mm-hmm. that the history starts losing its meaning and then it starts being a thing that only, you know, it's like the theoretical computer science part of computer science. Mm-hmm. It becomes a niche thing that only like the rare holders of the, the world wars and the, you know, uh, all the history, the founding of the United States, all those kinds of things, the, the civil wars. And it's it's a kind of profound thing to think about how these, how we can lose track, how we can lose these fields when they're best, like in the case of history, is best for that to be a pervasive thing that everybody learns and thinks about and so on. And I would say computing is quite obviously similar to history. In the sense that it seems like it should be a, a part of everybody's life to some degree, especially like as we move into the later parts of the 21st century, and it's not obvious that that's the way it'll go. It might be in the hands of the few still, like it, it, depending if it's machine learning. You know, it's it's un, it's unclear that it'll, computing will win out. It's currently very successful, but it's not. I, I would say that's something. I mean, you're at the leadership level of this. You're defining the future, so it's in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but like, it, it feels like there's multiple ways this can go. And there's this kind of conversation of everybody uh, should learn to code, mm-hmm. right? The changing nature of jobs and so on. Do you have a sense of what your role in uh, education of computing is here? Like what's the hopeful path forward?
1: There's a lot there I, I will I will say that well first off, it would be an absolute shame if no one studied history uh, on the other hand, as t approaches infinity, the amount of history is presumably also growing at least linearly, and so uh it's you you have to forget more and more of history, but history needs to always be there. I mean, I can imagine a world where you know if you think of your brains as being you know outside of your head that you can kind of learn the history you need to know when you need to know it, that seems fanciful but it's a it's a kind of way of you know, is there a sufficient statistic of history? No, and there certainly, but there may be for the particular thing you have to care about. But
0: you know, those who do not for our objective camera discussion, right? Yeah, it's right, it's and a,
1: and you know, we've already lost lots of history, and of course, you have your own history that some of which will be, are it's even lost to you, right? You don't even remember whatever it was you were doing seventeen years ago. All the remember. ex-girlfriends, yeah, gone <laughs> exactly. So you know, history is being lost anyway. But the big lessons of history shouldn't be, and I think you know, to take it to the question of computing and sort of education, the point is you have to get across those lessons. You have to get across the way of thinking. Um, and you have to be able to go back and, you know, you don't want to lose the data, even if, you know, you don't necessarily have the information at your your fingertips. With computing, I think it's somewhat different. Everyone doesn't have to learn how to code, but everyone needs to learn how to think in the way that you can be precise. And I mean precise in the sense of repeatable, not just, you know, in the sense of not resolution in the sense of get the right number of bits. Um, in saying what it is you want the machine to do, and being able to describe a problem in such a way that it is executable, which we are not. Human beings are not very good at that. In fact, I think we spend much of our time talking back and forth just to kind of vaguely understand what the other person means, and hope we get it good enough that we can we can act accordingly. Um, you can't do that with machines, at least not yet. And so, you know, having to think that precisely about things is quite important, and that's somewhat different from coding. Coding is a crude means to an end. On the other hand, the idea of coding, what that means, that it's a programming language and it has these sort of things that you fiddle with in these ways that you express, that is an incredibly important point. In fact, I I would argue that one of the big holes in machine learning right now and in AI is that we forget that we are basically doing software engineering. We forget that we are doing, we're using programming, like we're using languages to express what we're doing. We get just so all caught up in the deep network or we get all caught up in whatever that we forget that, you know, <laughs> we're making decisions based upon a set of parameters mm-hmm. that we made up. And if we did slightly different parameters, we'd have completely different different outcomes. And so the lesson of computing, computer science education, is to be able to think like that and to be aware of it when you're doing it. Basically, it's a you know, at the end of the day, it's a way of um, surfacing your assumptions. I mean, we call them parameters or, you know, we 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 call them if-then statements or whatever, but you're forced to surface those those assumptions. That's the key, the key thing that you should get out of a computing education, that and that the models, the languages and the machines are equivalent. But it actually follows from that, that you have to be explicit about, about what it is you're trying to do because the model you're building is something you will one day run. So you better get it right or at least understand it and be able to express roughly what what you want to express. So I think it is key that we figure out how to educate everyone to think that way. Because at the end, it would not only make them better at whatever it is that they are doing, and I emphasize doing, it'll also make them better citizens. It'll help them to understand what others are doing to them so that they can react accordingly. Because you're not going to solve the problem of social media insofar as you think of social media as a problem by just making slightly better code, right? It only works if people react to it appropriately and know what's happening, and therefore take control over what they're doing. I mean, that's that's my take on it.
0: Okay, let me uh, try to proceed awkwardly mm-hmm. into the topic of race. Okay. One is because it's a fascinating part of your story and you're just eloquent and fun about it, and then <laughs> the second is because we're living through a pretty tense time in terms mm-hmm. of uh, race tensions and discussions and ideas in in this time in America. You grew up in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Not born in Atlanta. You're is some southern state somewhere in Tennessee something like Tennessee. that? Tennessee? Nice. Okay. <laughs> but that you you early on you moved. You you basically uh you uh identify as an Atlanta native. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh you've mentioned that you grew up in a predominantly uh, black neighborhood. By the way, black, African-American, person of color. I prefer Does black. Black. With yeah. a capital B. With a capital. <laughs> the other letters are... Uh, the
1: rest of them don't matter. Uh, <laughs> <a> capital <B. laughs>
0: uh, Okay, so the predominantly black neighborhood. And so you didn't almost see race. Maybe you can correct me on that. Like, And then when just in the video, you talked about when you showed up to Georgia Tech for your undergrad, you're one of the only... Uh, black folks there, and that was like, oh, that was a new experience. So can you take t- take me from a, just a human perspective, but also from a race perspective, your journey growing up in Atlanta, and then showing up at Georgia Tech.
1: Okay, that's moments. easy. And by the way, that story continues through MIT as well. Yeah. Um, In fact, it was quite a bit more stark and, at MIT and, and Boston.
0: So maybe just a quick pause, Georgia Tech was undergrad, MIT was Graduate school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I went
1: directly to grad school from undergrad. So I had no, I had no distractions in between my bachelor's and my master's and PhD.
0: You didn't go out on backpacking trip in Europe. Mm, didn't do any of that, didn't do it. In fact, I,
1: I literally went to IBM for three months, got in a car and drove straight to Boston with my mother mm. or Cambridge, Yeah, um, moved into an apartment I'd never seen over the Royal East. Anyway, that's, a, that's another story. So let me tell you a little bit about You miss MIT? It. Oh, I loved MIT. I don't miss Boston at all. But I <laughs> loved MIT. And them was fighting warrants. Okay. Uh, so let's back up to this. So as you said, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, my earliest memory is arriving in Atlanta in a moving truck at the age of three and a half. So I think of myself as being from Atlanta. a very distinct memory of that. So I grew up in Atlanta. It's the only place I ever knew as a kid. Uh, I loved it. Like much of the country, and certainly much of Atlanta in the 70s and 80s, it was deeply highly segregated, uh, though not in a way that I think was obvious to you unless you were looking at it or were old enough to have noticed it, but you could divide up Atlanta, and Atlanta's hardly unique in this way, by highway, and you could get race and class that way. So I grew up um, not only in a predominantly black area, to say the very least, uh, I grew up on the poor side of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I was very much aware of race for a bunch of reasons, one that people made certain that I was, uh, my family did, but also that it would come up. So in first grade, uh, I had a girlfriend, I say I had a girlfriend. I didn't have a girlfriend. I wasn't even entirely sure what girls were yeah. in the first grade, uh, but I do remember she decided I was her girlfriend, the so white girl named Heather. Um, and we had a long discussion about how it was okay for us to be boyfriend and girlfriend, despite the fact that she was white and that I was black.
0: Uh, between the two of you or yeah, between your parents? The two of, did between your parents the two of, know about this?
1: Uh, yes, but being a girlfriend and boyfriend in first grade, just basically meant that you spent slightly more time together during recess. It it had no, I think we Eskimo kissed once. Uh, It doesn't mean, it didn't mean hardly anything. It was, at the time, it felt very scandalous (laughs) because everyone was watching. I was like, ah, my life is, now my life has changed in first grade. No one told me elementary school would be like this.
0: Did you write poetry or? Not in first okay, grade. Okay. That would come later. Okay. <laughs>
1: that would okay. come during puberty. Uh when I wrote lots and lots of poetry. Uh anyway, so um so I was aware of it. I didn't think too much about it, but I I, I was aware of it. Um, but I was surrounded. It wasn't that I wasn't aware of race, it's that I wasn't aware that I was a minority. It's uh, different. Uh and it's because I wasn't, as far as my world was concerned. I mean, I'm six years old, five years old, first grade. The world is the seven people I see every day, right? You know, so so it didn't feel that way at all. Um And by the way, this being Atlanta, home of the civil rights movement and all the rest, it meant that when I looked at TV, which back then one did, because there were only three, four, or five channels, right? And I saw the news, which my mother might make me watch, you know, the uh, Monica Kaufman was was on TV um, telling me the news, and they were all black, and the mayor was black, and always been black. And so it just never occurred to me. Uh, When I went to Georgia Tech, I remember the first day walking across campus from West Campus to East Campus and realizing along the way that of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that I was seeing, I was the only black one. That was enlightening um, and very off-putting because it occurred to me. And then, of course, it continued that way for, well, for the rest of my for much of the rest of my career at Georgia Tech, of course I found lots of other students and I met people because in Atlanta you're either black or you're white, there was nothing else. Um, so I began to meet students of Asian descent and I met students who we would call Hispanic and so on and so forth and you know, so my world, this is what college is supposed to do, right? It's supposed right. to open you up to people and uh, it did. But it was a very strange thing to be uh, in the minority. Uh, when I came to Boston, uh, I will tell you a story. I. I applied to one place as an undergrad, Georgia Tech, because I was stupid, I didn't know any better, I just didn't know any better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, No one told me. Uh, When I went to grad school, I applied to three places, Georgia Tech, because that's where I was, MIT and CMU. Uh, When I got in to MIT, I, I got into CMU, but I had a friend who went to CMU, and so I asked him what he thought about it. He spent his time explaining to me about Pittsburgh, much less about CMU, Uh, but more about Pittsburgh, of which I developed a strong opinion based upon his strong opinion. Something about the sun coming out two days out of the year. Uh, And I didn't get a chance to go there because the timing was wrong. Um, I think it was because the timing was wrong. At MIT, I asked uh, 20 people I knew, either when I visited or I had already known for a variety of reasons, whether they liked Boston. And 10 of them loved it and 10 of them hated it. The 10 who loved it were all white the 10 who hated it were all black. And they explained to me very much why that was the case. Um, both sets told me why Why it, and the stories were remarkably the same for the two clusters. Um, and I came up here and uh, I could see it immediately, uh, why people would love it and why people would not. And- uh, Why
0: people tell you about the nice coffee shops and- uh, Well, when
1: coffee shops, it was CD, used CD places, but yeah. Yeah. It was that kind of a thing. Yeah. Nice shops. Oh, there's all these students here. Harvard Square is beautiful. Yeah. You can do all these things and you can walk in something about the outdoors, which I wasn't the slightest bit interested in. Uh, the outdoors is for the bugs.
0: It's not for humans.
1: Um, and <laughs> the- that's,
0: that's, That should be a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: that's the way I feel about it. Um, the And uh, the black folk told me completely different stories about which part of town you did not want to be caught in uh, after dark and- um, And I heard all, but that was nothing new. So uh, I decided that MIT was a great place to be as a university. And I believed it then, I believe it now. Uh, And that whatever it is I wanted to do, I thought I knew what I wanted to do, but what if I was wrong? Um, Someone there would know how to do it. Of course, then I would pick the one topic that nobody was working on at the time, but that's okay. Um, It was great. And so I thought that I would be fine. And I'd only be there for like four or five years. (laughs) I told myself, which turned out not to be true at all. Uh, But I enjoyed my time. I enjoyed my time there. But I did see a lot of, um, I I ran across a lot of things that were driven by what I look like Uh, while I was here. I got asked a lot of questions. Uh, I ran into a lot of cops. Uh, I did a, I I saw a lot about the city. But at the time, I mean, I haven't been here a long time. These are the things that I remember. So this is 1990. There was not a single black radio station now, this is nineteen ninety. there are I don't know if there are any radio stations anymore. I'm sure there are. But you know, I don't listen to the radio anymore, and almost no one does, um, at least if you're under a certain age. But the idea is you could be in a major metropolitan area and there wasn't a single black radio station, by which I mean a radio station that played what we would call black music then, um was absurd, but somehow captured kind of everything about about the city. I grew up in Atlanta, and you know you've heard me tell you about Atlanta. Boston had no economically viable or socially cohesive black middle class. Mm. Insofar as it existed, it was uniformly distributed throughout large parts, not all parts, but large parts of the city. And where you had concentrated concentrations of black Bostonians, uh, they tended to be poor. It was very different from where I grew up. I grew up on the poor side of town, sure, but then in high school, well— in ninth grade, we didn't have middle school. Um, I went to an eighth grade school where there was a lot of uh let's just say we had a riot the year that I was there. There was at least one major fight every week. It was a, it was it was uh it was an amazing it was an amazing experience. But when I went to ninth grade, I went to Academy, math, math and Math and Science Academy, yeah. Mays High. It was a public school. It was a magnet school. That's why I was able to go there. Uh, it was the first school, high school, I think, in the state of Georgia to sweep the state math and science fairs. It was great. It had um, 385 students, all but four of whom were black. I went to school with the daughter of the wow. former mayor of Atlanta, michael jackson's cousin i mean you know there was it was an upper middle class Dropping say, names. At least, whatever. you know i just drop names occasionally <laughs> you know like drop the mic drop some names just to let yeah. you know i used to hang out with michael jackson's cousin twelfth yeah. cousin nine yeah. times removed i don't know yeah. the point is, is they had money we had a parking problem because the kids had cars yeah. i did not come from a place where where you had cars i got my first car when i came to mit actually um so it was uh it was just a it was just a very different <laughs> Very different experience for me, but I'd been to places where whether you were rich or whether you were poor, you know, you could be black and rich or black and poor, and it was there and there were places, and they were segregated by class as well as by race, but um, that existed. Here, at least when I was here, it didn't feel that way at all, and it felt like a bunch of a, a really interesting contradiction. It felt like it was the interracial dating capital huh. of the country. Yeah, It really felt that way. Uh, but it also felt like the most racist place I ever spit any time. Uh, You know, you couldn't go up the Orange Line at that time. I mean, again, that was 30 years ago. Uh, I don't know what it's like now, Uh, but there were places you couldn't go, and uh, you knew it. Everybody knew it, Uh, and there were places you couldn't live, and everybody knew that, Uh, and that was just the greater Boston area in 1992.
0: Subtle racism or explicit racism? Both. So. so in terms of within the institutions, did you feel, was okay, is, was there levels in which you were empowered to be first or one of the first black people in a particular discipline in, in some of these great institutions that you were part of, you know, Georgia Tech or MIT? And was there a part where it, was, it felt limiting?
1: I always felt empowered. Some of that was my own delusion, I think, but it worked out. So I never felt, as in fact, quite the opposite. Not only did I not feel as if no one was trying to stop me, I had the distinct impression that people wanted me to succeed. By people, I meant the people in power. Uh, Not not my fellow students, not that they didn't want me to succeed. But um, I felt supported, or at least that people were happy to see me succeed at least as much as anyone else. But, you know, 1990, you're dealing with a different set of problems, right? You're, You're... you're very early, at least in computer science, uh, you're very early in the sort of Jackie Robinson period. You know, there's this thing called the Jackie Robinson syndrome, which is that you you have to, right. you know, the first one has to be perfect or has to be sure to succeed because if that person fails, no one else comes after for yeah. a long time. So, um, you know, it was kind of in everyone's best interest. But I think it came from a sincere place. I'm completely sure that people uh, went out of their way to try to make certain that uh, the environment would be good not just for me, but for the other people who of course were around, and I was hardly the only, I was the only person in the AI lab, but I wasn't the only the, the only person at, at MIT by a long shot. Um, on the other hand, we we're what? At that point, we would have been, what, less than 20 years away from the first black PhD to graduate from MIT, right? Shirley Jackson, right, 1971, something like that? Somewhere around then. Um, so we weren't that far away from the first first, and we were still another eight years away from the first black PhD in computer science right? So, um, we were in a, it was, it was a sort of interesting time, but I did not feel as if the institutions of the university were against any of that. And furthermore, I felt as if there was enough of a critical mass across the Institute from students and probably faculty, though I didn't know them, um, who wanted to make certain that the right thing happened as very different from the institutions of the rest of the city, uh, which I think were, Designed in such a way that uh they felt no need to be supportive.
0: Let me ask a touchy question on that. Uh so you kind of said that you didn't feel you felt empowered. Is there some lesson advice in the sense that no matter what, you should feel empowered? You should you said you use the word I think illusion or delusion. Mm-hmm. Is there a sense From the individual perspective, where you should always kind of ignore, you know, the, the, uh, ignore your own eyes, (laughs) ignore the, the, the little forces that you are able to observe around you that are like trying to mess with you, of whether it's jealousy, whether it's hatred in its pure form whether it's just hatred and it's like diluted form mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff and just kind of see yourself as empowered and confident all those kinds of things
1: I mean it certainly helps but it's it, there's a trade off right you have to be diluted enough to think that you can succeed I mean you can't get a PhD unless you're crazy enough to think yeah. you can invent something that no one else has come up with. I mean, that kind of massive delusion is that. So you have to be deluded enough to believe that you can succeed despite whatever odds you see in front of you. But you can't be so deluded that you don't think that you need to step out of the way of the oncoming train, right? Right. So it's all a trade-off, right? Uh, You have to kind of believe in yourself. It helps to have a support group around you in some way or another. Um, I was able to find that. I've been able to find that wherever I've gone, even if it wasn't necessarily on the floor that I was in. I had lots of friends when I was here. Many of them still live here. Um... And I've kept up with many of them, so I felt supported. And certainly, I had my mother and my family, and those people uh, back home uh, that I could always, I could always lean back on. Even if it were a long distance call that cost money, which, is, you know, not something that any of the kids today even know what I'm talking about. But you know, back then it mattered. Calling my mom was an expensive proposition. Uh, but you know, you have that, and it's fine. I, I think it helps. But you cannot be so deluded that you miss the obvious because it makes things slower and it makes you think you're doing better than you are. Um, and it will hurt you in the long run
0: you mentioned cops uh you tell a story of being pulled over uh, perhaps it happened more than once
1: No, oh, more than once for sure
0: one could you tell that story and in general can you give me a sense of what the world looks like when the when uh, the law doesn't always look at you with uh uh with a blank slate with like with uh with the uh, objective eyes i don't know how to say it more poetically
1: well i guess the uh, I, I don't either i guess the the answer is it looks exactly the way it looks now because this is the world that we happen to live in right it's people clustering and doing the things that they do and making decisions based on and you know one or two bits of information they find relevant which by the way are all positive feedback loops uh which makes it easier for you to believe what you believed before because you behave in a certain way that makes it true and it goes on and circles and it cycles and, it cycles, and it cycles and it cycles. So it's just about being on edge. I do not, despite having made it over fifty now. Despite Congratulations, made it, brother. You. God. Um I have a few gray hairs here and there. You did pretty um, good. I, I think, you know, I don't imagine I will ever see a police officer and not get very, very tense. Now, everyone gets a little tense because it probably means you're being pulled over for speeding or something, or you're gonna get a ticket or whatever, right? I mean, the interesting thing about the law in general is that most human beings' experience of it is fundamentally negative, right? Yeah. You're only dealing with a lawyer if you're in trouble, except in a few very small circumstances, right? But, so that's just a that's an underlying reality. Now imagine that that's also at the hands of the police officer. I remember at the time when I was, when, when I got pulled over that time, halfway between Boston and Wellesley, actually. Um, I remember thinking, as he, when he pulled his gun on me, that if he shot me right now, he'd get away with it. That was the worst thing that I felt about that particular moment, is that if he shoots me now, he will get away with it. It would be years later when I realized, actually much worse than that, is that He'd get away with it, and if anyone, if it became a thing that other people knew about, odds were would be, of course, that it wouldn't. But if it became a thing that other people knew about, if I was living in today's world as opposed to the world thirty years ago, that not only would we get away with it, but that I would be painted a villain. I was probably big and scary, and I probably moved too fast. And if only I'd done what he said, and da, da 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 da, which is somehow worse, right? You, you know, that hurts not just you; you're dead, uh, but your family. And the way people look at you and look at your legacy or your history, um, that's terrible. And it would work. I absolutely believe it would have worked had he done it. Now, he didn't. I don't think he wanted to shoot me. I don't think he felt like killing anybody. He did not go out that night expecting to do that or planning on doing it. And I wouldn't be surprised if he never, ever did that um, or ever even pulled his gun again. I don't know the man's name. I don't remember anything about him. I do remember the gun. Guns are very big when they're in your face. I can tell you this much. They're much larger than they seem.
0: But And you're basically like
1: speeding or something like that.
0: He or, said, "I ran a light." I ran
1: think. a light. Sure. I don't think I ran a light, but you know, in fact, I may not have even gotten a ticket. I may have just gotten a warning. I think but, he was a little. But he pulled it. a gun. Yeah, apparently, I moved too fast or something. Rolled my window down before I should have. It's unclear. I think he thought I was going to do something, or at least that's how he behaved.
0: So, how, if we can take a little walk around your brain, how do you feel about that guy? And how do you feel about cops well, after I don't, that experience? Well, I don't
1: remember that guy, but my views on police officers is the same view I have about lots of things. Fire is an important and necessary thing in the world, but you must respect fire because it will burn you. Fire is a necessary evil in the sense that it can burn you, necessary in the sense that, you know, heat, and all the other things that we use fire for. So. When I see a cop, I see a giant ball of flame
0: and I just try to avoid it. And then some people might see a nice place, uh, a nice thing to roast marshmallows with a family over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is fine, but I don't roast marshmallows. Okay, so let me go a little darker and I apologize. I just talked to Dan Carlin about Hitler for four hours. So mm-hmm. I, if I, sorry if I go uh, uh, dark here a little bit, but is it easy for that, this experience of just being careful with the fire and avoiding it to turn to hatred.
1: Yeah, of course. And one might even argue that it is a, uh, a logical conclusion, right? On the other hand, you've got to live in the world. And uh, I don't think it's helpful. Hate is something one should, res- I mean, hate, hate is something that takes a lot of energy. So one should reserve it for when it is useful and not carry it around with you all the time. Again, there's a big difference between the happy delusion that convinces you that you can actually get out of bed and make it to work today without getting hit by a car, and the sad delusion that means you can not worry about this car that is barreling towards you, right? So we all have to be a little deluded, because otherwise we're paralyzed, right? But one should not be ridiculous. If we go all the way back to something you said earlier about empathy, um, I think— what I would ask other people to get out of this one of many, many, many stories is to recognize that it is real. Um, people would ask me to empathize with the police officer. I would quote back statistics saying that you know being a police officer, police officer isn't even in the top ten most dangerous jobs in the United States. You're much more likely to get killed in a taxi cab. Half of police officers are actually killed in the um, by suicide. Uh, but that means their lives are something. Something's going on there um, with them. And I would more than happy to be empathetic about what it is they go through and how they they see the world. I think, though, that if we step back from what I feel and we step back from what an individual police officer feels, you step up a level and all this because all things tie back into interactive AI. The real problem here is that we've built a narrative. We built a big structure that has made it easy for people to put themselves into different Pots in the different clusters, and to um, basically forget that the people in the other clusters are ultimately like them. It is a useful exercise to ask yourself sometimes. I think that if I had grown up in a completely different house and a completely different household, as a completely different person, if I had been a woman, would I see the world differently? Would I believe what that crazy person over there believes? And the answer is probably yes, because after all, they believe it, and fundamentally, they're the same as you. So then what can you possibly do to fix it? How do you fix Twitter if you think Twitter needs to be bro- is broken or Facebook if you think Facebook is broken? how do you fix racism? How do you fix any of these things? It's all structural, right? It's not indiv- I mean individual conversations matter a lot, but you have to create structures that allow people to have those individual conversations all the time in a way that is relatively safe. Um, and that allows them to understand that other people have had different experiences, but that ultimately were the same. Which sounds very, um, I don't even know what the right word is. I'm trying to avoid a word like saccharin, but you know, it's it feels very optimistic. But I think that's okay. I think that's a part of the delusion, is you want to be a little optimistic and then recognize that the hard problem is actually setting up the structures in the first place, because it's in no one's, it's in almost no one's interest to change the infrastructure.
0: Right, I I tend to believe that leaders have a big role to that, of selling that optimistic delusion to everybody, Mm -hmm. and that eventually leads to the building of the structures. But that requires a a leader that unites, uh, sort of unites everybody on a vision as opposed to divides on a vision. Which is, this particular moment in history feels like there's a non-zero probability, if we go to the P, of something akin to a violent or a nonviolent civil war. This is one of the most divisive periods of American history in recent. You, know, you can speak to this from a per, perhaps a more knowledgeable and deeper perspective than me, but from my naive perspective, this seems like a very strange time. There's a lot of anger, mm-hmm. and it has to do with people. I mean, for many reasons. One, the thing that's not spoken about, I think much is the quiet economic pain of millions mm-hmm. that's like growing because of COVID, because of closed businesses, because of like lost dreams. So that's building, whatever that tension is, is building. The other is, there is, seems to be an elevated level of emotion. I'm not sure if you can psychoanalyze where that's coming from, but this sort of from which the protests and so on percolated, it's like, why now? Why this particular moment in history?
1: Oh, because time enough time has passed, right? I mean, you know, the very first race riots were in Boston.
0: Uh, not to draw anything. Really? That. When? Oh, this is before like going yeah.
1: way. I mean, like the 1700s or whatever, right? I mean, okay. there was a massive okay, one gotcha. in New York. I mean, I'm talking <laughs> way, way, way back when. Yeah. So um, Boston used to be the hotbed of riots. It's just what Boston was all about, yeah. uh, or so I'm told from history class. Uh, there's an interesting one in New York. Um, I don't remember when that was. Anyway, the 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 point is you know, basically you got to get another generation old enough to be angry, but not so old to remember what happened the last time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's sort of what happens. But, you know, you, you you said like two completely, you you said two things there that I think are worth unpacking. Uh, one has to do with this, this sort of moment in time. Uh, and you know, why, why is this sort of upbuilt? And the other has to do with a kind of, um, sort of the economic reality of COVID. So I'm actually, I want to separate those things because for example, you know, this happened before COVID happened, right? So let's separate these two things for a moment. Now, let me preface all this by saying that although I am uh, interested in history, uh, one of my three minors as an undergrad was history, specifically history of the 1960s.
0: Um, Interesting. The other was Spanish and- Okay, uh, that's a mistake.
1: Oh, I loved, I loved. Okay. I'm
0: just uh,
1: <laughs> uh, and history of Spanish, and Spanish history, actually. But Spanish, and the other was um, what we would now call cognitive science. But at the time. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Interesting. Uh, I minored in cogsci here uh, for grad school. That was really, that was really fascinating. It was a very different experience from all the computer science classes I'd been taking, even the cogsci classes I was taking, uh, taking at, at an undergrad. But anyway, um, I'm not, I'm, I am a, I'm interested in history, but I'm hardly a historian right, yes. uh so you know forgive my my i will ask the audience to forgive my my simplification um but I think the question that's always worth asking as opposed to it's the same question, but a little different, not why now, but why not before right so mm-hmm. Why the 1950s, 60s civil rights movement as opposed to the 1930s, 1940s? Well, first off, there was a civil rights movement in the 30s and 40s. It just wasn't of the same character or quite as well known post-World War II. Lots of interesting things were happening. It's not as if a switch was turned on and... Um Brown versus the Board of Education or the Montgomery boys, boy, uh, bus boycott, and that's when it happened. these things have been building up forever, and you can go all the way back and all the way back and all the way back. And you know, Harriet Tubman was not born in 1950. right So you know, we can take these things. it could have easily
0: up. happened after right after World War II.
1: Yes, I think, and again, I am not a scholar. But I think that the big difference was TV. <laughs> these things are visible. People yeah. can see them. Yeah. It's hard to avoid, right? The, you know, why not James Farmer? Why Martin Luther King? Because one was born twenty years after the other, or whatever. Uh, I think it turns out that you know, you know, what King's biggest failure was in the early days it was in Georgia. You know, they were doing some, uh, doing the usual thing, uh, trying to trying to integrate, and uh, the I forget the guy's name, but you, you can look this up. But he. He, uh, a a cop, he was a sheriff, made a deal with the the whole state of Georgia. We're going to take people and we're going to non-violently put them in trucks. And then we're going to take them and put them in jails very far away from here. And we're going to do that. And we're not going to, there'll be no reason for the press to hang around. And they did that and it worked. And the press left and nothing changed. So next they went to Birmingham, Alabama and Bull O'Connor. And you got to see on TV little boys and girls being hit with fire hoses and being knocked down, and there was outrage, and things changed, right? Part of the delusion is pretending that nothing bad is happening that might force you to do something big you don't wanna do, Um, but sometimes it gets put in your face, and then you kind of can't ignore it. And a large part, in my view, of what happened right was that it was too public to ignore. Now, we created other ways of ignoring it, Lots of change happened in the South, but part of that delusion was that it wasn't gonna affect the West or the Northeast. And of course it did, and that caused its own set of problems which went into the late 60s into the 70s, and you know, in some ways we're living with that legacy now, Uh, and so on. So why not, what's happening now? Why didn't it happen 10 years ago? I think it's, people have more voices. There's not just more TV, there's social media. It's very easy for these things to kind of build on themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, and things are just quite visible. And there's demographic change. I mean, the world is changing rapidly, right? And so it's very difficult. Uh, You're now seeing people you could have avoided seeing most of your life growing up in a particular time. Uh, And it's happening. It's dispersing at a speed that is fast enough to cause concern for some people, but not so fast to cause massive negative reaction. Uh, So that's that. On the other hand, and again, that's a massive oversimplification but I think there's something there anyway, at least something worth exploring. I'm happy to be yelled at by a real historian.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just a, um, the obvious thing, I mean, I guess you're implying, but not uh, the saying is. I mean, it seemed to have percolated the most with just a single video, for example, the George Floyd uh, makes video. A makes a difference. It, it's, it's fascinating to think that, w- that whatever the mechanisms that put injustice in front of our face, not like, Like directly in in front of our face, those mechanisms are the mechanisms of change.
1: Yeah, on the other hand, Rodney King. So no one remembers this. I seem to be the only person who remembers this, but sometime before the Rodney King incident, there was a guy who was a police officer who was saying that things were really bad in Southern California, Um, and he was gonna prove it by having uh, some news, some camera people follow him around. And he says, I'm gonna go into these towns and just follow me for a week, and you will see that I'll get harassed. And like the first night, he goes out there and he crosses into the city. Some cops pull him over and they, he's a police officer, remember. They don't know that, of course. They like shove his face through a glass window. Mm-hmm. This was on the news. Like I distinctly remember watching this as a kid. Um, actually, I guess I wasn't a kid. I was in, I was in college. At the, I was in grad school at the time.
0: So that's anyway, not enough. Like just, just, just. Well, it disappeared.
1: Like yeah. a day later, it didn't go viral. Whatever
0: that is, whatever that magic thing is. And
1: whatever it was in 92, it was harder to go viral in 92, right? Um, Or 91, actually it must've been 90 or 91. But that happened. And like two days later, it's like it never happened. Like nobody, again, nobody remembers this. But I'm like the only person. Sometimes I think I must've dreamed it. Anyway, Rodney King happens, it goes viral Mm -hmm. or the moral equivalent thereof at the time. And eventually we get April 29th, right? And I don't know what the difference was between the two things other than one thing caught and one thing didn't. Maybe what's happening now is two things are feeding onto one another. One is more people are willing to believe. And the other is there's easier and easier ways to give evidence. Yeah. Cameras, body cams, or whatever. But we're still finding ourselves telling the same story. It's the same thing over and over again. I would invite you to go back and read the op eds from what people were saying about the. Violence is not the right answer after Rodney King. And then go back to 1980 and the big riots that were happening around then and read the same op, it's the same words over and over and over again. I mean, there's your remembering history right there. I mean, it's like literally the same words. Like you could have just, I'm surprised no one got flagged for plagiarism.
0: It's interesting if you have an opinion on the question of violence and the popular perhaps caricature of Malcolm X versus, versus King, Martin Luther King.
1: You know Malcolm X was older than Martin Luther King? People kind of have it in their head that he's younger. Well, he 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 died sooner, right? But only by a few years, right? People think of MLK, uh, of MLK as the older statesman and they think of yeah. uh, Malcolm X as the, the young, angry, whatever. But that's more of a, a narrative device. It's not true at all. I don't, uh, I just, I reject the choice. As I, I think it's a false choice. I think they're just things that happen. You just do and as I said, hatred is not it takes a lot of energy. But you know, every once in a while you have to fight. One thing I will say, without taking a moral position, which I will not take on this matter.
0: Um violence has worked. Yeah, that's the annoying thing. That's so the annoying thing. It seems like over the top anger works outrage works. So you can you can say like being calm and rational and just talking it out is is going to lead to progress, but it seems like if we just look through history uh being irrationally upset is the way you make progress. Well, it's certainly
1: the way that you get someone to
0: notice you. Yeah. And that's if it, a, and if they don't notice you, I mean,
1: what's the difference between that and what you, again, without taking a moral position on this, I'm just trying to observe history here. If you Maybe if television didn't exist, the civil rights movement doesn't happen or it takes longer or it takes yeah. a very different form. Maybe if social media doesn't exist, a whole host of things, positive yeah. positive and negative, don't happen, right? So, and what do any of those things do other than expose things to people? Yeah, Violence is a way of shouting. I mean, many people, far more talented and thoughtful than I have, have said this in one form or another, right? That, you know, violence is the, voice of the unheard right i mean it it's 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 a thing that people do uh when they feel as if they have no other option and sometimes we agree and sometimes we disagree sometimes we think they're justified sometimes we think they are not but regardless it is a way of shouting and when you shout people tend to hear you even if they don't necessarily hear the words that you're saying they hear that you you were shouting i see no way so another way of putting it which i think is less um let us just say um provocative, but I think is true, is that um, all change, particularly change that impacts power, requires struggle. The struggle doesn't have to be violent, you know, but it's a struggle nonetheless.
0: The powerful don't give up power easily.
1: I mean, why why should they? But even so, you still has to be a struggle. And by the way, this isn't just about you know violent, political, whatever, nonviolent political change, right? This is true for understanding calculus, right? I mean, everything requires a struggle. We're right? back to
0: talking about faculty hiring.
1: At the end of the day, <laughs> in the end of the day, it all comes down to faculty hiring. And that the Godfather is scene. <laughs> <laughs> all a metaphor. <laughs> faculty hiring is a metaphor for all of life.
0: Uh, let me ask like a, a, a strange question. Do you, have a, a, do you think everything is gonna be okay in the next year? Do you have a hopeful, do you have a hope that we're gonna be okay?
1: I tend to think that everything's gonna be okay because I just tend to think that everything's gonna be okay. My mother says something to me a lot uh, and always has, and, and I find it quite comforting, which is this too shall pass. And this too shall pass. Now, this too shall pass is not just a this bad thing is going away. Everything passes. I mean, I have a 16-year-old daughter who's going to go to college probably in about 15 minutes given how fast she seems to be growing up. Mm. And, you know, I get to hang out with her now, but one day I won't. She'll ignore me just as much as I ignored my parents when I was in college and went to grad school. This too shall pass. But I think that, you know, one day, if we're all lucky, uh, you live long enough to look back on something that happened a while ago, even if it was painful. And mostly, it's a memory.
0: So, yes, I think, I think it'll be okay. What about humans? Do you think we'll, uh, we'll live into the 21st century? Is I certainly it, I- hope so. Are you worried about are you worried that we might destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons, with AGI, with uh, engineering? I'm not worried
1: about AGI doing it, but I am worried <laughs> I mean, at, at any given moment, right also but you know, at any given moment, a comic I mean, you know whatever. I, yeah, I, I, I tend to think that outside of things completely beyond our control, we have a better chance than not of making it.
0: You know, I I talked to Alex Filippenko from uh from Berkeley. He he was talking about comets and that they can come out of nowhere. And it, it, that was a realization to me. Uh wow. We're we're just watching this darkness and they can just enter and then we have less than a month.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and yet you make it from day to day. <laughs> that one
0: shall not pass. Well, maybe for Earth they will pass, but not for humans. Right.
1: But <laughs> I'm just I'm just choosing to believe yeah. that uh it's going to be okay, and we're not gonna get hit by an asteroid, at least not while I'm around. And if we are, mm-hmm. well, there's very little I can do about it, so I might as well assume it's not going to happen.
0: It makes food taste better. It they, makes they food wish. taste better. So you, out of the millions of things you've done in your life, you've also began the uh, This Week in Black History calendar of facts. There's there's like a million questions that can ask here. Uh, you said you're not a historian. But is there, let's start at the big history question of, is there somebody in um, in history, in black history, that you draw a lot of philosophical or personal inspiration from, or you just find interesting, or a moment in history you find interesting?
1: Well, I find the, the entirety of the 40s to the 60s and the civil rights uh, movement that didn't happen and did happen uh, at the same time during then quite inspirational. I mean, I've... I've uh, I've read quite a bit of the time period, at least I did uh, in my younger days when I had more time to read as many things as I wanted to. Uh, what was quirky about This Week in Black History when I started uh, in the 80s uh, was how focused it was. and It was because of the sources I was stealing from. And I was very much stealing from sort of, like mm-hmm. I'd take calendars, anything I could find, Google didn't exist, right? And I just pulled as much as I could and just put it together in one place for other people. What ended up being quirky about it, and I started getting people sending me information, was uh, the inventors. People who, you know, Garrett Morgan, Benjamin Banneker, right? People who were inventing things. um, At a time when, how in the world did they manage to invent anything? Like... All these other things were happening, Mother Necessity, right? All these other things were happening. And, you know, there were so many terrible things happening around them. And, you know, they went to the wrong state at the wrong time. They may never, never come back, but they were inventing things we use, right? And uh, it was always inspiring to me that people would still create, uh, even under those circumstances. Um, I got a lot out of that. I also learned a few lessons. I think, you know, the Charles Richard Drews of the world, you know, you, you, you create things that impact people. You don't necessarily get credit for them. And that's not right, but it's also okay.
0: You okay with that?
1: Up to a point, yeah. I mean, look, in our world, all we really have is credit.
0: I was always bothered by how much value credit is given. That's the
1: only thing you got. I mean, if you're an academic in some sense, no, well, it isn't the only thing you have got, but it feels that way sometimes.
0: But you got the actual... We're all going to be dead soon. Mm-hmm. You got the joy of having created. Yeah. The, you know, the the credit with Jan. Uh, I've talked to Jorgen Schmidhuber, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Turing Award given to uh, three people for deep learning. And you could say that a lot of other people should be on that list. It's the Nobel Prize question. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad and people like talking about it, but I feel like in the long arc of history, the only person who will be remembered is Einstein, Hitler, maybe Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> and the rest know, of us are just like...
1: <laughs> well, you know, someone asked me about immortality once, and and I said, and I stole this from somebody else, I don't remember who, but it was, you know, I asked them, what's your great-grandfather's name? Any of them? Of course, they don't know. Most of us do not know. I mean, I'm not entirely sure I know my grandparents' name, all my grandparents' names. I know what I called them. Right, I don't know any of their middle names, for example. Um, didn't within living memory, so I could find out. Actually, my grandfather didn't know when he was born. Had no idea how old he was, right? But I definitely don't know who any of my great-grandparents are. So in some sense, immortality is doing something, preferably positive, so that your great-grandchildren know who you are, right? And that's kind of what you can hope for, which is very depressing in some ways. Uh, you could I could turn it into something uplifting if you need me to, but yeah, it's, can you
0: do the work here
1: <laughs> yeah it's 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 simple right? it doesn't matter I don't know have to know who my great grandfather was to know that I wouldn't be here without him, yeah, and I don't know who my great grandchildren are, certainly who my great great grandchildren are, and I'll probably never meet them, although I would very much like to but Hopefully, I'll set the world in motion in such a way that their lives will be better than they would have been if I hadn't done that. Well, certainly, they wouldn't have existed if I hadn't done the things that I did. So, um, I think that's a good positive thing. You live on through other people.
0: Are you afraid of death?
1: I don't know if I'm afraid of death, but I don't like it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's another (laughs) t-shirt. I mean, do you ponder it? Do you uh, you think about the, the... the inevitability of oblivion. Yes.
1: Uh, I do occasionally. Um this feels like a very Russian conversation, actually. It's, it's very um, yeah. <laughs> I will tell you a story, a very uh something that happened to me <laughs> recently. I um if you look very carefully, you will see I have a scar. Yes. Um, which by the way, is an interesting story of its own about why people have half of their thyroid taken out. Some people get scars and some don't. Um but anyway, I uh I had half my thyroid taken out. The way I got there, by the way, is its own interesting story, but I won't go into it. Just suffice it to say, I did what I, I keep telling people you should never do, which is never go to the doctor unless you have to, because there's nothing good that's ever going to come out of a doctor's yeah. visit, right? So I went to the doctor to do look at one thing, this little bump I had on the side that I thought my, might be something bad because my mother made me. And I went there and he's like, oh, it's nothing. But by the way, your thyroid is huge. Can you yeah. breathe? Yes, I can breathe. Are you sure? Because it's pushing on your windpipe. You should be dead. Ah! Right? So I ended right. up going there and uh, to get my... Uh, To to look at my thyroid, it was growing. I had what's called a goiter. Um, And he said, we're going to have to take it out at some point. When? Sometime before you're 85, probably. But if you wait till you're 85, that'll be really bad. Because you don't want to have surgery when you're 85 years old, uh, if you can help it. Um, Certainly not the kind of surgery it takes to take out your your thyroid. So um, I went there, and uh, we decided, I would decide I'd put it off until December 19th because my birthday's December 18th, and I wanted to be able to say I made it to 49 or whatever. So I said, I'll wait till after my birthday. Um, in the <laughs> interven- in the si- first six months of that, yeah. uh, nothing changed. Apparently in the next three months, it had grown, dr- I-, I hadn't noticed this at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went and had surgery, they took out half of it. The other half is still there, and it's working fine, by the way. I don't have to take a pill or anything like that, it's great. I'm in the hospital room, and um, the um, doctor comes in. I've got these things in my arm. They're gonna, they're gonna do whatever. They're talking to me. And the anesthesiologist says, "Huh, your blood pressure's through the roof. Are you? Do you have high blood pressure?" I said, "No, but I'm terrified if that helps you at all." Um, and the anesthetist, who's the nurse who supports the anesthesiologist, um, if I got that right, uh, said, "Oh, don't worry about it. I've just put some put some stuff in your IV. You're gonna be feeling pretty good in a couple minutes." And I remember turning and saying uh well i'm going to feel pretty good in a couple minutes next thing i know there's this guy and he's moving my bed and i have this and he's talking to me and i have this distinct impression that i've met this guy and i should know what he's talking about but i kind of like just don't mm-hmm. remember what just happened and i look up and i see the tiles going by and i'm like oh it's just like in the movies where you see the tiles go by mm-hmm. and then i have this brief thought that i'm in an infinitely long warehouse and there's someone um, sitting next to me. And I remember thinking, oh, she's not talking to me. And then I'm back in the the, the hospital bed. And in between the time where the tiles were going by and I got in the hospital bed, something like five hours had passed. Apparently it had grown so much that it was a four and a half hour procedure instead of an hour long procedure. Mm-hmm. I lost a neck size and a half. It was pretty big, apparently it was as big as my heart. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because. <laughs> it's a hell of a story already. So. Between tiles going by and me waking up in my hospital bed, no time passed. There was no sensation of time passing. When I go to sleep and I wake up in the morning, I have this feeling that time has passed. This feeling that something has physically changed about me. Nothing happened between the time they put the magic juice in me and the time that I woke up nothing by the way my wife was there with me talking apparently i was also talking i don't remember any of this but luckily i didn't say anything i wouldn't normally say my memory of it is i would talk to her and she would teleport around the room mm. and then i accused her of witchcraft and that was the end of that but she <laughs> her point of view is i would start talking and then i would fall asleep and then i would wake up and leave off where i was before i had no notion of any time passing i kind of imagine that that's death <laughs> Yeah, is the lack of sensation of time passing. And on the one hand, I am, uh, I don't know, soothed by the idea that I won't notice. On the other hand, I am very unhappy at the idea that I won't notice. So I don't know if I'm afraid of death, but I am completely sure that I don't like it and that I particularly would prefer to discover on my own whether immortality sucks um, and be able to make a decision about it. That's what I would prefer.
0: Like uh, have a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. I would like to have a choice in the matter. Well, again, on the Russian thing, I think uh, the finiteness of it is the thing that gives it uh, a little flavor, a little spice. So, well, re- in reinforcement
1: up. learning, we believe that that's why we have discount factors. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what you do.
0: <laughs> Amen. Well, uh, let me one last question, uh, sticking on the on the Russian theme. You talked about your great grandparents not remembering their their name. What do you think is the in this kind of uh, Markov chain that is life? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is the meaning of it all? What's the meaning of life?
1: Well, in a world where um, eventually you won't know who your great grand you won't know who your great grandchildren are, um, I am uh, reminded of a of something I heard once or I read I read once that I, I really like, which is it is well worth remembering. That the entire universe, save for one trifling exception, is composed entirely of others. And I think that's the meaning of life.
0: Charles, this was one of the best conversations I've ever had. And I get to see you tomorrow again to hang out with a, with a, with who, who looks to be one of the most, uh, how should I say, interesting personalities that I'll ever get to meet with Michael Lipman. So I can't wait. I'm excited to have had this opportunity. Thank you for traveling all the way here. It was, it was amazing. I'm excited. i always love Georgia Tech. I'm excited to see with you being involved there what the future holds. So thank you for talking today. Thank you for having
1: me. I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: Thanks for listening to this conversation with Charles Isbell. And thank you to our sponsors, Neuro, the maker of functional sugar-free gum and mints that I used to give my brain a quick caffeine boost, Decoding Digital, a podcast on tech and entrepreneurship that I listen to and enjoy, Masterclass, online courses that I watch from some of the most amazing humans in history, and Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends for food and drinks. Please check out these sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with Five Stars on Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some poetic words from Martin Luther King Jr. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November.